Uh, good morning. We, welcome to the December 1st uh, meeting of the uh, Planning Board. Um, I, I do have an a, uh, important notice from Historic Preservation. On this date, in December 1st, 1961, the Women's Club of Chevy Chase carried out Operation Santa Claus. Although that was not particularly significant, there was another significant uh, event in a different Montgomery. Uh, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to surrender her bus seat to white passengers in violation of Alabama's segregation law and was arrested. It sparked uh, 381 days of boycott led by Martin Luther King. Uh, fairly significant for the state. Um, so, with that, uh, again, I'd like to welcome everybody. We have uh, four commissioners uh, present in person, Commissioner Hill, Commissioner um, uh, Branson, and Commissioner Pinero. Uh, uh, Commissioner uh, Presley will join us shortly, we hope, online and we'll announce that when, when she arrives. Uh, we have some preliminary matters. Um, the first is uh, adoptions of resolutions from our prior work, uh, Leisured World Administrative Buildings, uh, a site plan amendment. Can I have a motion? Mr. Chairman, I'm, I move to adopt the uh, Leisure World Site Plan um, Administrative Building. Resolution. Resolution, sorry. <laughs> Second. Second, though. Commissioner uh, uh, Panera was not present at this, but all other members uh, can vote. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 <laughs> Commissioner Panera. Do you abstain? Yes, I do abstain because okay. I was absent during the discussion of the issue world. Thank uh, resolution. you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Uh, we have a second resolution, the PSTA preliminary plan. Um, uh, I think everybody was present for that one. Uh, yes. So uh, do I hear a motion to approve the resolution? Mr. Chair, I move that we approve the resolution as presented for PSTA preliminary plan 12020010. <laughs> One zero B. A second. Uh, hearing no discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 All right. Uh, I do note um, that the resolutions uh, from the first drafts uh, had some editorial changes. Uh, a lot of my quirks on getting to plain English, but and I appreciate legal staff uh, making those changes. Uh, we have approval of minutes. Uh, 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 November 3rd, November 7th, November 10th, and a closed session on November 10th. Um, Mr. Chair, I move that we approve the, meeting, the minutes. Uh, there was one edit that was already been in, introduced and presented to us uh, this morning, and you just cited what they were. Okay. Second. And Mr. Chair, I need to abstain because I was not present during those uh, meetings. Thank you. Um, but we're happy you're here now. Uh, so. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, too. <laughs> uh, all those in favor of approving the minutes, say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Those minutes are approved. We have, uh, oh, do we have to stop for record plots, or are we still on preliminary? 
Okay, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> um, uh, for records plots, we have uh, one before us. This is plot uh, 2202 uh, 10750 West Chevy Chase Heights. Um, the staff recommends approval. Although this is a public hearing, there are no speakers signed up. So, so the hearing is closed. Uh, do, I, do I hear any discussion? Seeing none, can I have a motion to approve? I'd like to move that we approve uh, the, since it's uh, mostly minor changes, that we approve the uh, West, Chest, West Chevy Chase Heights uh, resolution. Okay. Second. No discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Uh, the, the record plot is approved. I'm sure I'll sign it at some break because these things come back fast. Uh, all right. Regulatory e extension requests. What a surprise. Always surprised <laughs> that these extensions are on the list. Um, uh, we have a press in place preliminary plan. Um, uh, 12022-0130 and site plan 82022-0180. Uh, this is the extension, uh, second extension request for that. We have the uh, Jefferson Street sketch plan uh, extension, another second extension. We have uh, BF Gilbert subdivision uh, uh, of Tacoma Park Administrative Subdivision, extend, another extension. Uh, this is a public hearing, yes, uh, but we have no speakers for any of these, correct? Okay, so the record is closed on those. Do I hear any motion? Mr. Chair. Mr. Chair, I'll move that we approve the regulatory extensions presented to us that you just cited um, as a group. Um, I would characterize generally that they either involve complexity or actions that the um, applicants are not in control of for other submissions. Do I hear a second? I, I second the motion that, Mr. that Commissioner Hill presented. Thank you. Seeing no discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Uh, just just a note for everybody, I am pursuing with staff um, uh, trying to figure out the reasons for extensions and I'm still working on it. <laughs> so uh, a little bit is that the timeline is relatively short, but the building industry does not want the commission to have a longer period of time. They want to push us, so they would rather seek the extensions than have uh, a requirement for 150 days rather than 120 days. But I will be pursuing that and just wanted to put everybody on notice. Mr. Chair, since you're making observations on this, I will make another, which is um, I'm a little disconcerted at the brevity of the reasons that applicants are stating in their applications. Uh, they carry the burden of proof on this, and uh, that concerns me. Okay. Yeah, I also uh, agree with Commissioner Hill. Um, on the other hand, I see that both the uh, one of the uh, uh, applicants uh, cited a, a, a 2000, I think 2008, 2009 recession. They also cited the pandemic. They 
I mean, there's been so many factors uh, affecting the development community that I tend to be empathetic. Uh, as long as the the staff here, um, you know, works with them and and gives us a good reason for uh, granting an extension. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm sure this will come up about every week, but that's okay. Yes. <laughs> um, all right, we're on item four. Do we need to stop? Keep going. Nope, keep going. Uh, this is roundtable discussion. We have uh, uh, the planning director with us, and it's uh, all yours. Thank you so much. Good morning, board members. Tanya Stern, acting planning director for the record. Um, Maureen, can I ask you to uh, operate the slides? Thank you. And we are joined by several staff from uh, Mid County who will introduce themselves. Ashley, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves before I get started? Good morning, Carrie Sanders, Chief of Mid County Planning. Uh, nice to see you this morning. Happy to uh, give you an update on this project. Good morning, Marin Hill, uh, Planner with Mid County Master Plan Division. Good morning, Aaron Savage, planner for Mid County Division and the Master Plan team. Why don't we go to the first slide? So I wanted to share uh, with the board about uh, an event that I attended just yesterday um, and actually was a speaker um, in the afternoon. This was the ULI uh, Washington or the Urban Land Institute Washington Future Forum um, that focused on housing and infrastructure for the region we want. Uh, there are actually also several planning department staff who attended as well. And this was a regional forum that ULI Washington um, convened in partnership with Amazon and others uh, to bring together regional leaders, both in the public and private sectors, uh, to have you know, real conversations about regional issues such as housing, transportation, um, infrastructure, and others, and to talk about how we can work on those issues um, regionally, collectively, instead of just region by region, or not region by region, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, uh, sector by sector, that we are all, the issues that we're dealing with in Montgomery County, uh, DC is dealing with that, Northern Virginia is dealing with that, or other sister counties in, in Maryland are dealing with similar issues. Um, and so there were a lot of really great conversations during the day. Um, I was able to participate uh, as a panelist uh, with uh, Peter Calthorpe, who gave the keynote um, during the lunchtime um, Peter Calthorpe is a well-known uh, urbanist uh, planner who has written a number of books, some of whom I have uh, in my planning library. <laughs> and uh, he also was one of the co-founders of the Congress of New Urbanism, um, helped to um, really advocate for the concept of transit-oriented development you know, a number of decades ago when that was a really a new concept. And so uh, he gave the keynote and talked about uh, efforts to move beyond just TOD and looking for other opportunities for, uh, for infill development. And he focused on this concept uh, that he called uh, Grand Boulevards, uh, specifically looking at underutilized uh, commercial strip centers along corridors. And uh, what he advocated for was to redevelop them by right um, into mixed use, into housing, um, as well as to design uh, our road networks to be not only multimodal, but to have spaces for uh, better pedestrian access, for bike lanes, you know, with trees, and um, 
And then we had a conversation with myself um, and uh, Katie Buckler, who's with, who's with the, uh, the development community, um, just in conversation about the notion of Grand Boulevards, as well as a state level bill that was passed in California recently. It was uh, SB 2011. Uh, that would make a lot of that type of development by right um, in the county. It also had a number of other uh, specific provisions. And he showed a number of renderings of the Grand Boulevard's you know, notion. And uh, one of the things that I noted was that a lot of what he was advocating for, Thrive Montgomery 2050 also advocates for. And I you know, noted that this is a direction that Montgomery County is, is already moving in. Um, we also have our complete streets design guide that, you know, when he showed those renderings of boulevards, I said, those all look very familiar to me because that's actually the direction that our department is also moving in um, and that we have been working with the planning board to make sure that we can realize that through, through the uh, regulatory reviews. And so um, it was a, a great conversation and, you know, again, a big takeaway from that event is that we need to have more uh, more gatherings like that, that I also felt like, um, you know, there were government officials there like myself, and again, folks from the nonprofit sector, advocacy sector, private sector, but that we really need to have elected officials and appointed officials to be part of these conversations as well, you know, because you, you as, as appointed officials and, and our elected officials, you know, that's really where the, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Um, we can certainly be major advocates in our planning and our regulatory reviews, but we also need the decision makers to be part of these conversations as well. So uh, with that, I will uh, turn it over to the Mid-County team. If you go to the next slide. Uh, oh. One question, Ms. Sure. Stern. Um, sure. I, um, I congratulate you representing the board at the, at the ULI meetings. Uh, just for the public in general, because we, you know, planners and urbanists, we know what the ULI stands for, Urban Land Institute, but can you talk a little bit about what they do and uh, what's the purpose of attending ULI? Sure. So ULI is the Urban Land Institute. It is a, it's actually a global organization, but particularly active in the United States. And um, it is a multidisciplinary, uh, really professional membership organization uh, that focuses on land use issues and development. And so um, uh, ULI National, what we call ULI National, in the United States has uh, district councils around the country. They're not chapters because they have actual staff that have their own programming and initiatives that they run. And so ULI Washington is a very active district council. I think there's over 2,000 members or so throughout the region. And um, I am a member of ULI. That is one of the professional organizations that I'm a member of. Um, and I joined ULI because it is multidisciplinary. It includes both the public and private sectors, the nonprofit sector, um, academia, uh, planners, architects, developers, you know, brokers. It's sort of the whole gamut of professionals who focus on real estate and planning issues. And um, uh, so ULI Washington puts on a lot of programming in this region. And this was a particular um, major event, a day-long event, that again focused on regional issues, but they oftentimes will put on different uh, panel discussions about specific issues that you know we're all concerned about or have interest in. And um, I actually will also note 
for the record, again, not only am I, not only am I a member of ULI, I'm actually very active in ULI Washington itself. I am currently on the uh, governance committee and uh, previously for three years co-founded and co-chaired the ULI Washington Placemaking Initiative Council. Uh, ULI Washington has uh, they used to be called initiative councils. They're now called local product councils. But these are smaller groups of local ULI members who they actually apply to get on these committees. And it's really an opportunity to have smaller gatherings focus on specific issues. So the one that I co-ran was focused on placemaking. And we met uh, four times a year. And we actually put together our own programming, uh, myself and the other co-chair, who is now a retired architect. And we brought together uh, professionals, again, from all the different sectors to look at various um, aspects of placemaking, both permanent placemaking through development projects, temporary placemaking, creative placemaking. Uh, we had one really great session focused on universities and placemaking, uh, because there are universities in this region that are doing major redevelopment projects and using their campuses and the properties, other properties that they own to create you know, new and different spaces. Um, and, and through that one session, uh, there was uh, someone from Gallaudet University, which was one of the uh, universities at that session, who talked about uh, designing uh, deaf space and designing for people who have low vision. And we thought, that's actually really fascinating. So we had a whole separate session just on that topic. Um, so that kind of just gives you an idea of what this organization focuses on. Uh, both ULI National and ULI Washington also have initiatives that they run um, to focus on, um, for example, uh, building healthy places, uh, big ish focus on resilience, and uh, ULI National also has a major focus on equity, um, diversity, and inclusion, um, particularly in the, in the development community. So that's, that's sort of a, a quick overview of a, a lot of what they do. Thank you very much. Very impressive. Thank you. So with that, I will turn it over to the Mid-County team to give an update on the Great Seneca Plan. Good morning, Carrie Sanders, for the record, Chief Mid-County Planning Division. Uh, before we get started and I hand it over to our project manager, Marn Hill, I wanted to um, take a moment to reflect a little bit on this plan because um, it is a really exciting effort uh, that we've started up. Um, we're relatively early in the planning process. We're actually going to come to you in January to give you a, a very detailed update on the existing conditions of, of the plan area. Uh, but today is intended to you know, give you an update on recent activities. Um, I wanted to highlight with this plan, um, it is an innovation center for Montgomery County, this area. Um, I mentioned uh, last month when I was before you giving you an overview of Mid-County and some of our work, there are actually 7,000 life sciences jobs in this plan area compared to 2,000 in the county overall. Um, so it's a very, very important area for the county. Um, and we're also seeing uh, substantial growth in terms of housing in this plan area before you um, at your last meeting, you considered an amendment to the Public Safety Training Academy site, um, which will house uh, 600 uh, new uh, folks um, with over 600 new homes. Um, so very significant uh, development in this plan area, um, actually under construction. Um, so uh, just wanted to highlight that for you as you get into a little bit more detail here with Marin and Aaron. Um, that we really feel that this is a very important planning effort um, for the county and actually for the state. 
uh, because we do see uh, Montgomery County as a leader um, in the state for life sciences as well as um, in the nation. So with that, I will turn it over to uh, Marn Hill to, to go over some recent updates on this plan. Thank you. Um, again, Marin Hill, project manager for the Great Seneca Plan, Connecting Life and Science. Um, so this plan is actually uh, an update to the 2010 Great Seneca Science Corridor Master Plan. Um, and it maintains the boundaries that were set in the 2010 uh, plan, which um, you can see outlined on the map um, in light gray. This plan area is somewhat unique um, because it is surrounded and um, in some cases contains the municipalities in the area um, of the city of Gaithersburg, the city of Rockville, and the town of Washington Grove, which are shown in yellow, pink, and um, brown, respectively. So the city of Gaithersburg actually takes up 10 square miles in the center of the plan area in yellow. Um, and the city of Gaithers, or the city of Rockville is to the east of the plan area and the town of Washington Grove is kind of to the northeast. Um, the plan area includes the neighborhoods of Quince Orchard, um, which are west of Gaithersburg, the Life Sciences Center, which uh, Carrie mentioned as an innovation center, um, as well as these enclave areas of the National Institutes of uh, standards and technology, which was right in the middle of the plan area. You can see that white, the big white blob. And um, as well as uh, the uh, Washingtonian apartments and industrial center and the neighborhoods of Rosemont and Walnut Hill. So although we have this, um, this large geography that the plan covers, we're really going to be focusing on the Life Sciences Center. That's where um, a lot of the recommendations will, will be targeted. Um, and the Life Sciences Center, as you can see on the map, includes Adventist Healthcare Medical Center, um, the PSTA site that uh, Ms. Sanders mentioned, as well as the universities at, uh, at Shady Grove. Um, campus and the, the Bellword site, which has several um, applications forthcoming. Um, this focus area, the reason that we're focusing here is it's really seen the most change since the 2010 plan. Um, it has a lot of new plan development. We've also seen a number of apartment buildings, as Ms. Sanders mentioned, the um, residential coming in in this area. Um, and it's also adjacent to some really important commercial centers that are, that are changing the areas in different ways that are not in the plan area, but rather in the city of Gaithersburg, like um, the downtown Crown and the Rio Lakefront. Um, this focus area also contains major roadways and um, areas that are planned for future infrastructure development. Um, so this plan can uh, incorporate that uh, into the recommendations. Um, it's also, um, the 2010 plan had set forth staging recommendations, um, and this is the only area of the 2010 plan that is actually subject to the staging uh, requirements. Um, so for this effort, we began our uh, pre-scope work in February of this year. Um, the scope of work was approved by the planning board in May, and the team is currently working, working on our visioning and analysis phase, um, which is uh, the phase that includes really intensive, iterative uh, engagement and outreach, as well as the bulk of our data collection and analysis. So you can see it's a much longer phase than the other parts of, of the plan. 
Um, and as Ms. Sanders mentioned, the Great Seneca team anticipates presenting an update to the board this coming January. Um, and then we would uh, anticipate submitting a working draft in the summer of 2023, holding a public hearing uh, with the planning board in the uh, fall of 2023 with the aim of transmitting to the council in um, late 2023. Um, so let's see. The Great Seneca Outreach and Engagement Strategy, which I wanted to focus on um, and highlight for you today, has really tried to meet people where they are. And what that means is for us going out in the community and finding people where they actually spend their time during the day. Um, we've held 12 pop-ups since, uh, since February, um, including at the Mana Food Distribution site that is held at the uh, campus of the universities at Shady Grove, um, at the Shady Grove Market, and at Downtown Crown, to just name a few. Um, the team has, um, is also joining Everyday Canvassing, which is um, a consultant to knock on uh, doors on multi, in multifamily buildings in the plan area. And the goal is to knock on more than 5,000 doors to really meet people literally where they are and where they live um, to hear about what their needs and interests are in the plan area. And then in addition to this broad uh, community outreach and engagement, uh, the Great Seneca team is also looking to experts both within our organization, um, but also outside the department for uh, guidance. Um, the plan was subject of, uh, as um, Ms. Stern was just saying, the ULI, uh, Urban Land Institute Technical Assistance Panel um, that was comprised of a group of real estate, transportation, planning, and design professionals. Um, who, who provided us with some recommendations and guidance to consider uh, in the development of our own recommendations. Uh, the team has also held uh, two focus groups with life science developers and with life science industry experts, um, and in, uh, recently held an internal design charrette with, uh, with staff uh, across the department. Um, and um, as well as um, we've had visioning meetings both online and in person in the plan area um, as well. And um, I wanted to focus on one of the other parts of our uh, outreach and engagement, which is um, really focusing targeted outreach um, and uh, strategies to engage specific demographic groups that- Excuse, um, excuse me, before you get to that, can sure. I ask you, um, um, as you mentioned earlier, these, this area encompasses uh, Gaithersburg and Washington Grove and Rockville. So I'm, I'm wondering what interaction you've had with um, those city officials. Yes. Um, and so I should say um, it borders, but uh, I wouldn't use the word encompasses just because they have their own planning authorities, um, as you're referring to. Um, so we've been lucky to have great partners in the city of Rockville and the city of Gaithersburg and, and the town of Washington Grove. Um, uh, we have um, an existing implementation advisory committee, Great Seneca's uh, Science Corridor Implementation Advisory Committee, which has been meeting for the last 10 years. It was established by the 2010 plan, and we have representatives from both the city of Gaithersburg and the city of Rockville um, as well. Uh, so they hear regular updates through that advisory committee. We also have a coordination, uh, Mid-County has a coordination meeting, a quarterly coordination meeting um, with the municipalities to let them know of up upcoming projects as well as hear their, um, their updates as well. And um, also we have professional relationships at the staff level. Um, so recently we had a meeting that I'm going to talk about that um, 
that uh, we had a lot of questions that came up that actually were related to issues in Gaithersburg. So I passed along the issues to the planners there. Um, and they are watching this um, closely because, uh, at least in the city of Gaithersburg, they're currently working on their own housing element updates. Um, so we're in regular communication. Uh, and I should say, while our outreach and engagement focuses on uh, the unincorporated areas of Montgomery County and the plan area, we are doing some activities. It's you know, looking at that map, you see sometimes it's hard to say where an area ends and um, where another begins. So we have done some activities in the city of Gaithersburg, and we always let them know that we're going to do those activities and invite them to join if they would like to. Um, the city of Rockville has also even um, promoted some of our events to let their residents know that they can uh, join in um, on these outreach and engagement efforts. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, we're doing this broad outreach, but we also want to target um, demographic groups that are perhaps overrepresented in the plan area in relation to uh, their representation in the county as a whole and who have been um, historically underrepresented in um, participation in planning efforts. Um, so highlighting one of these, uh, one of these strategies um, the, the Great Seneca Plan population is um, more than 25% Asian American and Pacific Islander, as opposed to less than 15% countywide, um, with Chinese language speakers um, comprising the, the bulk of that population. So the Great Seneca team partnered with the Chinese Culture and Community Service Center to develop a Chinese language engagement strategy including two in-person um, meetings, as well as advertising online and in, in print. Um, and the first meeting was held just recently on November 15th in Mandarin and English. We had translation services uh, with simultaneous translation, uh, two-way translation for the meeting. Uh, the slides and uh, handouts were printed in simplified Chinese, and we had more than 40 people participate. Um, and the second meeting will be held this spring as a follow-up to review the draft preliminary recommendations. So this was an opportunity for people to give us feedback about what they wanted to see in the area, and then we're going to come back to them in the spring, and that's always an important part. It's say, this is what we've developed. Did we get it right? Did we hear you right? Um, so the team worked on promoting this event, both with the, the, it, the acronym is CCACC, um, through Chinese media um, Chinese language media, um, and with the help of Yuan Zhang Li, who's in uh, countywide planning. Uh, flyers were also distributed in simpli simplified and traditional Chinese, and the CCACC shared the event with their over 8,000 subscribers um, as well. So this looks familiar again, but uh, just for the the next steps for the plan, the team is going to continue our data collection and analysis, um, as well as our engagement uh, through the spring of 2023, holding events also with the universities at Shady Grove, um, an organization called I Identity that works with Latino youth and family, and as I mentioned, another uh, CCACC event, as well as um, general public events. Um, and then after, shortly after the update that we anticipate in January to the board, um, the team will be de begin developing our preliminary recommendations and, as I said, bring them back to the community to get feedback uh, before bringing them, back, uh, bringing them to the board, um, which we expect to submit preliminary recommendations um, in the spring of 2023 and um, bring the working draft to the board, as I mentioned, in summer of 2023. So thank you.
Thank you. Mr. Chair, I have a couple questions. Sure. <clears throat> um, you mentioned 7,000 jobs in this area. Do you happen to know if we have a high uh, open rate for those jobs? And is there any correlation with that, with sort of, you know, housing and land use and circumstances that we might contribute? Um, so we should clarify that the 7,000 jobs is are just private sector life science jobs, um, and they are, um, I, I don't think that they're, I don't have the, the statistic on how many are opening. I mean, what we found is there are, as the board may see, there are many applications for life science in that area, so there are constantly new, um, new companies coming mm -hmm. and opening, um, but it's a very competitive market um, and attracting new folks all the time um, to the area. Um, and I think that one thing that I didn't highlight as much in this uh, in this presentation, but as Ms. Sanders mentioned, there actually is a large, uh, there's a lot of multifamily housing that has come in recent years. And um, the multifamily housing, the vacancy rate is very low at like a 2% um, in some of the newer buildings. Um, so I think that one of the things that we're looking at in this plan is, you know, how can we make sure that we're supporting the workers um, that are working both at these uh, life science companies that Ms. Sanders mentioned, but also at the universities at Shady Grove um, and other and the um, and the medical center. And one thing we've heard from uh, from the medical center, at least, is one of their uh, big challenges in retention is actually the cost of housing in the area, um, and that they are losing nurses uh, to other areas, more affordable areas. Um, and we've heard from. Um, you know, anecdotally from people in the community that are commuting from Frederick and further out to these jobs because they can't afford to live in the area or that there aren't the kind of the diversity of housing types that fit their needs as their family grows and changes. Um, that was a good segue. Um, just a little more precise question was, is um, do you have a perception, yes, housing is increasing here, but this is also to some extent the, the buildable areas around the municipalities that are pretty much built in. And, you know, is this, are we seeing, and you may not know the answer to this until you're done with analysis, I appreciate, but are we seeing this is opportunistic housing going into places that it can and becoming part of the general population that, you know, the, the pressure on that, or is this really accommodating housing for the people that are working there, which really fulfills the, you know, live-work um, ideal that we're after? There, um, one thing I think that is really interesting, and we have a graphic that I'll share at our next update, but is that shows where people are coming from throughout the county and their commutes. And although they are coming from everywhere, and we do see people in Frederick, there's actually the largest proportion are coming from directly surrounding this area, both in Gaithersburg, Rockville, but also li living in the plan area. So I think that the housing is accommodating. I mean, obviously, it has people who work all over, but it is accommodating uh, also people who are coming to work and live in that area, and that was really a vision of the 2010 plan. As, as you say, you know, hopefully we'll know more uh, the further we get into our analysis, um, but, uh, but preliminary analysis suggests that, uh, that the housing is serving people in that area. And I think that one of the exciting things is we are um, talking internally as a team, and this came up during the shred, is uh, ways that we can kind of have this more innovative housing that might serve as uh, some of the workforce that isn't being served as part of uh, as part of the the new residential developments. And you know, we also hope that things like the um, the uh, elms at the PSTA site will bring new housing in um, as well to serve that. 
I would just add, you may remember from the ELMS project that came before you a few weeks ago, there is a, a higher percentage of affordability with that development. Um, that is the redevelopment of the Public Safety Training Academy site. So it, um, it's, it's large, in, large in acreage, but it also did have, I believe, up to a 30% set aside for MPDU, um, moderately priced dwelling units. 15% um, is what the requirement is. Um, but, you know, that might be something that we explore with this plan. Uh, we'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that when we come back in January is, you know, when we see these new housing developments, do we need to look at a higher percentage of affordability for those units, given that, as, as Marin noted, um, we did get direct feedback, particularly from uh, the medical workers, that it's really difficult to make, to make it work and live in Montgomery County and also uh, commuting and getting to those jobs. Um, so we might want to look at how we can make um, more affordability in the plan area, uh, particularly as we have the new developments coming on um, online. All right, last question. Um, municipal growth boundaries, right? Both of the, the um, municipalities have them. They overlap. They overlap with this area. Um, is there a sense of stability in, in that relationship between, you know, is, is this an area that's shrinking in terms of what the this body would consider because of the annexation and expansion of the municipalities? I make sure I understand the question. Was yeah. the question more, uh, is there a concern about the municipal? Uh, maybe just if you don't mind expanding a bit on the question. <laughs> we, yeah. Okay, we, we were staking out the areas within a planning, you know, special area, right? But there's the, certainly the potential for the municipalities to expand into those, so what we are planning for gets smaller in the process. And I'm just wondering about it's sort of a dynamic thing that happens over maybe a decade or two. Uh, do we know, you know what, what the relationship is in that and how to proceed for that? So that is a conversation we want to continue to have with the municipalities. Um, we know Rockville has maximum expansion limits as well as Gaithersburg, and those are adopted by the county council. Um, we know that Rockville recently had some interest in um, expanding its area into this area um, that was not pursued by the Rockville City Council. Um, uh, they were looking at other expansion areas out, uh, in the Shady Grove location instead. Uh, but you know th that's a conversation we want to continue with have with those municipalities um, as well as with the property owners. Uh, we, we feel um, in our conversations that there's some really strong um, uh, activity centers like Downtown Crown, like Falls Grove, that serve this plan area well, and there's a good synergy between those two things. We, we see people, you know, walking to lunch in Falls Grove that, that work in the plan area. Um, we're not necessarily looking to replicate the, the strength of those areas. We feel that this area has its own character and um, will build out as an innovation district in its, in its own right. Uh, but, but I think you bring up a good question. Through this plan, we're going to need to address that issue. We're going to need to talk to those uh, municipalities about their plans. And we probably want to update you all um, throughout that process so you're aware of what those conversations are. Um, but in terms of process, so I, I know you're familiar with it, Commissioner Hill, since you were with Rockville for so long. Um, but yes, that those expansion limits would have to go before the county council. And they would also come before the board for review before they go to the council, as I understand. Okay. Thank you very much. Let me ask a couple of questions. Um, just Please remember that this is just an initial oh, briefing. Know, We're I going know. to get more I detail just, in January. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I just want to bring to your attention the fact that when you do work on this working draft that we're going to uh, receive uh, fairly soon, 
that you take into account, I mean, obviously this is an area that's been targeted for high growth. I mean, we're talking about the 7,000 positions, you know, very important economically. We're also talking about uh, the, we just approved the uh, BSTA, number of housing there. Uh, so it's going to be an area that's going to be congested in the future. Um, and uh, we really have to, so, you know, in a way, get out of looking at just the life science Great Seneca area. We have to look at transportation, congestion, access. Um, what are we going to recommend so that, like you mentioned, there's, you know, a lot of people coming from within the area, but there's people that are commuting from Frederick. Uh, are we going to, you know, is this going to create more congestion? What are the options? What are the alternatives in terms of access? Um, and in terms of the, when I was at HOC on the board, we, ha we always had an issue because, you know, as the MPDUs become available, HOC has an opportunity to purchase a third of the units. And many of them came in this area, but the access issue was always, okay, how are we going to put there either as uh, people there as renters or homeowners, and how are they going to get to the places of employment? So that's, you know, in a way, I mean, when, when you think about low-income people, are there going to be opportunities there in these uh, life science centers? I'm sure there will, but take this into consideration. We always found that this is an area where there's a lot of natural affordable housing. So uh, there might be a need to create, in areas where there's a lot of natural affordable housing, there's more need to create market housing like in the eastern part of the county or the northern part of the county. So these are all kind of issues that you should think about when you uh, bring this working draft to us in the future. So thank, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you, Commissioner. Uh, Commissioner Brandt. Just one short thing. Um, I'm glad you noted that you've done particular outreach uh, to the um, Asians, Pacific Islander community, and I believe you mentioned the Latino community also. So um, I hope you're doing particular outreach to the African American community because we're there are a lot of there are a lot of black folks out in in Gatesburg area, um, and um, um, and if I, I would appreciate you know knowing who who you're talking to out there, I'm happy to help uh, make sure that you can actually reach out to folks who are there. I do really appreciate that, and we will probably come back to you for, uh, for advice. Thank you. Does that conclude your report? That concludes my report. Thank you very much. Very informative. Obviously, lots of uh, interest in the area, and we'll see you in January next year. Um, we are ready if uh, technology is ready to go to item six. Excuse me? I knew so so we're we're pausing for a second. <laughs>
thank you. Welcome to the December 1st uh, session of the Montgomery County Planning Board. Uh, we are on um, item five, which is uh, a resolution for the adoption of uh, Thrive Montgomery. I welcome Commissioner uh, Presley to our meeting Thank virtu you. virtually. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll turn it over to uh, Mr. Offsell, who will present this. Thank you. Good morning, Brother Record, Khalid Offsell with Montgomery County Planning Director's Office. And with me also is co-project lead, Carrie McCarthy, Division Chief, Research and Strategic Projects Division. And we are here to seek approval um, for approval of the resolution of adoption for Thrive Montgomery 2050, which is more of a housekeeping item required by county code for any master plan or general plan after it's approved by the county council. Uh, County Council approved this on October 25th. The adoption of resolution is a two-step process. Uh, first, the planning board will approve it, and then we'll send it to the full commission, so you will see it again on December 21st. And after the commission adopts it, that's the last step in terms of wrapping up the process. Uh, it will become the new general plan for Montgomery County, uh, except for the seven municipalities that have their own planning and zoning authority, which are the cities of Rockville and Gaithersburg, and the municipalities of Barnesville, Brookville, Laytonsville, Poolsville, and Washington Grove. And with that, um, we are here to seek approval of the resolution of adoption that's part of your packet. And just so the board and everybody knows, we'll, we'll get fully briefed will, on, on the yes. content of, of the plan. Uh, in uh, January, uh, the council made extensive uh, revisions to the plan that are reflected in the draft uh, that we have going to the commission, uh, and I'll entertain uh, a motion for adoption. Mr. Chairman, I move to adopt the uh, Thrive Montgomery 2050 plan as amended by the council. Mr. Chair, I second that motion. Any further discussion? Yeah, I'll just comment that this seems like a curious vote to me because I think it may be a vote without substance um, because it seems to me a procedural process that so we're just saying, yeah, move it through the next step, having come back from the council. Is that an accurate it characterization? Isn't, it is. Uh, I, I think so, yes. Um, I, I mean, yeah. the process in, in law is that the commission has to adopt exactly what the council sent. Uh, so we are essentially just getting this in line to go to the commission meeting in December, and then we'll have a vote there. This is a substantial event, uh, but it was really an event that occurred before our, our being appointed. Um, so yes, we, we do these things now and then, and this is one of those things. <laughs> so Mr. Chair, uh, can I assume that all the changes that the county council made or recommended were incorporated into the plan. You, you can't assume it. You can, yes. can be assured by staff. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. County Council. One of the attachments. One of the attachments to this is the County Council resolution. Yes. It goes line by line and paragraph. I, I saw that line by line. <laughs> yes. So, so there after were quite a the few. commission adopts it, what we will do it at that point. We will stop. We will start putting the final version of the plan as a readable document with appropriate graphics and everything for publishing 
purposes. So if there's any issue that you have a concern with, uh, it comes back to us and it go also goes to the county council. Let me, um, let, me, let me address that. Uh, again, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director. So the county council through the Planning, Housing, Economic Development Committee held nine work sessions. Mm -hmm. We worked very closely with the committee as well as council staff uh, as they worked through edits during that process. And then with the full council, uh, they held another nine work sessions. And again, we were involved in all of those work sessions, worked very closely with council staff. Uh, any issues that we had during those periods of time, we worked through all of those. And so the final version that was adopted by the county council in October, that is before the board today, to approve through this resolution reflects all of those changes which we, we are already aware of um, and have worked through those issues. And so at this point, there are no further changes that will be made to the plan. Thank you. Okay, we have a motion and a second on the floor. All those in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. A momentous event. We'll, we'll see everybody in December on the same issue. And then it's going to be a pro forma vote before, before the commission. We're ready to move to item six if uh, technology is ready. Thank you. Uh, good morning. This is the December 1st session of the uh, Montgomery County Planning Board. We are on item six, 
It's the uh, WMAL property in Bethesda preliminary plan amendment uh, 1201-6029A and site plan amendment as well, uh, 8201-7017B. There's got to be an easier way to say numbers sometimes. Um, in, in any event, uh, this is a minor modification of the plan. I think Mr. Teitelbaum will take us through the facts here. No? Oh, Ms. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good I'm, morning. Forgive me. <laughs> I, I accept your apology. Thank you. Good morning, commissioners. My name is Emily Tettelbaum with the Mid-County Planning Division. Um, and I am very pleased to be here this morning to present minor uh, amendments to the Amelin Bethesda site plan. Um, we used to call this project WMAL um, when it came in for the original approval. So you see both names on the screen before you. Um, Omelandine is a new residential neighborhood of detached homes and townhouses, and uh, we're happy to report that construction is well underway on this neighborhood already. Um, so this presentation will summarize preliminary plan amendment 1-2016-029A and site plan amendment 8-2017-017-B. Um, I will note that these types of amendments usually um, just go before the planning director for approval. Um, but there was a lot of community involvement in the original approvals. So the former planning director decided to defer um, decision on these amendments to the planning board to allow enough input, um, uh, to allow enough time for community input. So staff recommends approval with conditions of the preliminary plan amendment and the site plan amendment as described in the staff report and summarized in this presentation. So just a little bit of history about the project. Um, the uh, previous approvals allow for 309 units, uh, 159 detached houses, 150 townhouses, um, which include 40 MPDUs. Um, the neighborhood also includes two extensions of public roads. Um, one of them is on the north side of the property here. It's, it's uh, an extension of Green Tree Road to meet Grayswood Road. And uh, there's also an extension of Renita Lane. Those are both public roads. Uh, the rest of the project has a grid of private streets connecting the neighborhood. So preliminary plan 1-2016-0290 was approved in 2017 by the planning board, followed by site plan 8-2017-0170, which was approved in 2019. There's been one site plan amendment that was approved administratively last year um, to account for some uh, needed changes to the forest conservation plan. Um, so, as I mentioned, these are minor plan amendments, and um, on here are the definitions on the screen are the definitions of the regulatory processes that we're looking at today. A minor preliminary plan amendment um, is any change that does not change density um, that, in a manner that results in a need for greater adequate public facilities analysis. There are no major changes to lot configuration or location, right-of-way width or alignment. Um, 
a minor preliminary plan amendment does not alter the intent, objectives, or requirements of the board in approving the original preliminary plan. Uh, likewise, a minor site plan amendment is uh, changed to a plan element that has minimal effect on the overall design, quality, or intent of the plan. Um, the, a minor site plan amendment also does not increase density or height or change, uh, prevent any circulation on any street or path. As I previously mentioned, these types of approvals are usually brought before the the planning director, um, but the prior director deferred decision on these amendments to the planning board. So the site is located just north of I-495 and east of I-270, as you can see on this map. Um, it's a, <clears throat> a large property um, and zoned R90, similar to the surrounding area. Uh, the, uh, the property is bordered on three sides by existing neighborhoods uh, to the north, west, and east. Here's a closer aerial view of the property. It's approximately 74 acres. It uh, used to be the home of WMAL radio towers and a radio station um, in a large field. Um, this, this was one of the largest properties in this part of the county. Um, there is existing forest on the northern and southern edges of the property, and as I previously mentioned, the first phase of the neighborhood is under construction. Um, these are two pictures that were taken um, within the last few months of the construction underway. Um, you can see on the screen, too, a uh, majority of the northern and eastern parts of the property have had plots recorded, so you can see the property lines for the private roads and the new houses. Um, these pictures uh, on the left side of your screen were taken along this extension of Grayswood Road right here, which is almost complete. So the scope of these amendments is relatively minor. Um, uh, this is a list of what, what's before you today, are, which are minor modifications to street gray layout and materials, uh, changes, small changes to sidewalk layout and materials, landscaping, open space, and stormwater management facilities, um, and some changes to the lot layout. Um, in addition, what, what used to be phase two has been broken into two sub-phases, phases 2A and 2B, um, and the amendment also includes a small expansion to the community clubhouse and minor mo modifications <clears throat> to the architectural elevations. So I'm not going to go through in detail every single one of these changes, but I just want to highlight two of the changes here. Um, <clears throat> this change, we think, actually is a big improvement to the plan because it provides a lot of um, open space where it didn't exist before. So this is along Grayswood Road, um, which is the public road in the northern part of the project. And as previously approved, there were, there were six lots fronting on a private lane, which you can see here, and then there was a small parcel here um, with landscaping. Um, and this proposal pulls these lots uh, so they front directly on Grayswood Road, and it then opens up space between the lots for uh, a small park open space gathering area. 
that will have seating, fire pits, um, a lawn area, and a great connection between the clubhouse just to the south and a trail through the forest conservation easement that is just to the north here. Um, I also wanted to point out um, some shifts that were done between the preliminary and site plan that are just being updated with this preliminary plan. So when the preliminary plan was first approved, there were townhouses over on this western side and detached houses here. And staff worked closely with the applicant during the original site plan to swap these. So um, the plan approved detached houses here, um, creating more open space here adjacent to this parcel that will be dedicated to MCPS um, and, and swapped uh, the townhouses down here. Um, and the unit count didn't change. It was just a, a shifting of unit types. So with that, um, we find that, that these changes are consistent with all the provisions of Chapter 50, which are the subdivision regulations, and Chapter 59, the zoning ordinance. And there are, they remain consistent with the master plan. Um, and all the findings have been satisfied as detailed in the staff report. Um, the applicant uh, completed all the needed outreach. We did receive correspondence from uh, a neighbor to the property who was in favor of shifting these lots south because it moved the new houses further away from the existing houses. Um, I also received a general inquiry about the amendments and the inquiry also expressed some general concerns about traffic generated by the new development, but these amendments will not have any impact to traffic in the area. Um, and, and I will commend the applicant. They've, they've done a good job keeping the adjacent um, neighborhood association updated on the progress of the plans. So with that, uh, staff recommends approval with conditions of the preliminary plan amendment and site plan amendment as described in the staff report and summarized in this uh, presentation. And I am happy to answer any questions you may have. Well, first of all, this is a public hearing. And I believe we have no speakers. Correct. So this public hearing is closed. Uh, now Commissioner Branson has some questions. Yeah, I have a few. Um, I noticed in the in the language of the uh, plan uh, that, and for some reason I can't find it now, but I I wrote it down last night, so I know it's there. Um, there's language that says the following um, quotation marks: uh, "Provided amendments do not conflict." with other conditions of the preliminary plan approval, right? I mean, I saw that like scattered throughout, scattered throughout. And so my first question is what's, I mean, it seems to me like that's a, like that's a loophole, how you fall out of it. You know, either it's, either it's in or it's out. This, this is sort of like we agree to agree if we agree. And, and so, you know, I'm concerned about that language because that appeared a lot. So I, I, maybe it's just the way you all do things. But, but I'd like to understand that. Sure, absolutely. I think you, you answered your question with your last statement. This is language that we include um, when we refer to the approval letters from all the agencies. And so... Um, our, the planning board's review is concluded with 
you know, the site plan and the resolution, but other agencies continue to review details of the project um, through the permitting stages. And so the, that condition allows the agency's flexibility to make changes as they continue the detailed review of engineered plans, um, so long as it doesn't conflict with any major approval of the planning board. So it just gives a little flexibility as, as further engineering details are worked out. And yeah, that's something we include in every, every regulatory project. You'll see okay. that language. Thank you. Um, that, that helps. Um, second question is, I thought, and I want to be 100% sure, that um, the MPD units will be integrated with the market units? They won't be setting out to the side somewhere? Yes, so they're all townhouse units, which is, which is allowed by the MPDU law. They're all townhouse units, and they are scattered throughout the townhouse area. That is something um, that was... Uh, Analyzed in detail at the site plan stage, it's it's hard to see on this little, um, you know, on this little image mm -hmm. here. But there are MPDUs scattered throughout this area with the townhouses here, and over here. And they're externally um, indistinguishable from the market rate units. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final thing I wanted to ask about, well, actually, final two things. One is one is very small, and that is um, I noticed that. <laughs> originally they wanted to plant wisteria and you all said no no that's an invasive um, but but you did allow them to plant non-invasive vines and and I'm just wondering if we have to be that specific as to it being a vine you know that it can just be a non-invasive native plant so th that's a good question so I think I can show you the image here that shows um, the plan I'm talking about. So they're planning these these large planters with trellises here. Mm -hmm. And so the vine, the wisteria would grow up these trellises. So we just, we just want them to plant another vine that's not invasive here, particularly so close to a forested area. Oh, I'm, I'm totally in favor of, of the non-invasive language. I'm just wondering if we have to be so specific as, as to say it's a vine. That, that's all. To I mean, there's, well, roses do that too, Jeff. Roses grow up. I mean, there's a lot of things that grow up a trellis. I'm, mm -hmm. That's all I'm saying. Okay, and because it's all about flexibility, right? And then the final thing is I think you had, I want to say, a little over four acres to... Um, to um, the public schools? Yes. And, and I'm wondering, what is that enough space for? Is that enough space for an elementary school? What is that enough space for? Yes, it would be a space for an elementary school. And, and, uh, and uh, the public schools have said, yes, that's enough space for an elementary school? Yes. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Thank you. Any others? Uh, just, let me just follow up uh, on what uh, Commissioner Branson said. The, um, the MPD users, 40 of them, and uh, you, you mentioned that uh, I think there was some kind of a minor modification from what the original proposal was, and I imagine that you guys work with the developer to see how you can disperse these uh, 40 units. So right now, 
again, um, there's no way that you can show us what the original plan was and how it's changed. So the, the change has already been approved because we did it as part of the original site plan. It, it is very hard to see in these images, but um, yeah, I don't, I think. Well, it's, it's part of the townhouses. No? It's part of the but, townhouses yeah. and it, it's hard to see in this image, but um, previously, and, and um, the engineer might be able to shed some more light on this or might have a, a better graphic to show this, but I, I believe previously there were MPDUs all together in one stick. Oh, really? And okay. so we've distributed them so there are market rate. I think you can see in this, if you can see my cursor here, yeah. here you see some smaller units kind of under the seven with larger units at the end. Okay, those are I believe those are the MPDUs okay. um, right. within you know, a stick of of market rate units. Okay, all right, well that answers my question. My, my other question is just a general question. Given the fact that this development borders I-270 and 495, uh, and I'm sure you, uh, you may have considered this before, there's no issues with regards to noise or pollution or any of those uh, concerns? So noise was analyzed quite thoroughly mm -hmm. during the preliminary and site plan, and there is a requirement for a noise wall um, along the southern border here. 495. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that and that, that wall is uh, is being coordinated so that it, it does get built. Yes. Yes. It's a requirement of of the site plan, I believe, okay. before certain units can be occupied. That wall has and to be constructed. That, part, that wall will be part of uh, what you call two two and three or two A and B or whatever. I mean, there hasn't been a, any construction in the southern part of the development. <coughs> Correct. Yes. I don't believe there's been any construction okay. yet of that sound so wall. So we can assume that the wall will be built before any construction or mm -hmm. any occupancy happens. Well, occupancy of the units that will be most impacted by the noise. Yes. Okay. All right. Commissioner uh, Robert Cronenberg, Deputy Director. I I'd like to just add a little bit more context, I think, to the MPDU uh, discussion yeah. that you're having here because 20 years ago it used to be that we had MPDUs that um, were part of one building and they were left towards the end to be developed mm -hmm. um, and they would not be built uh, and designed in the same context that the market rate units were. Um, at least 20 years ago uh, the planning department had a policy uh, to start the discussion earlier with Department of Housing and Community Affairs and with the development community to integrate those units into market rate units um, so that the design of the units would look similar. Uh, they wouldn't stand out even though many of the, the units, um, if they were townhouse or if they were duplex, they would still be designed in accordance with the market rate units and look the same. Um, there's only been a few instances, I think, where we have uh, worked with uh, DHCA or HOC in some cases uh, to where the uh, a, a stick of units would be on its own and would be MPDUs, but that's only with some design considerations uh, put into the conditions. Uh, but we typically don't like to do that. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that the units are built in the same progression uh, that the rest of the market rate units are, so that they're not left towards the, uh, towards the end of the development. 
Um, that's something we work with the development community on uh, on, a, on a daily basis with these applications. Um, and I, I think the only other thing I would point out is we don't typically see detached units as MPDUs. It's typically on the smaller end with the townhouses, duplexes, uh, and, and in all cases when we have multifamily units over the threshold, uh, they're integrated by floor. Um, so we, you know, happy to have those discussions when we bring a multifamily project to you. But uh, we do look at not only how they're integrated with the market re uh, units, you know, from a townhouse uh, or fee simple type development or um, with a duplex, but uh, by floor with the multifamily as well. Uh, just to give you a little bit more flavor and context for that discussion. Thank you, Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Hill? Yeah, I just have two points of, um, on the amendment that I just want to prod just a little bit. So um, there is a change in um, the as asphalting, a number of paths and streets, as I understand here. And it strikes me that <clears throat> um, the argument that given for us is that it's a cost factor in the future for maintenance. But are we really losing sort of aesthetics and imperviousness in the process of doing that? And yeah, those maintaining those things has costs. Um, but is it a, a net loss sort of situation that we should be concerned about? So um, I'll point out that none of the previous pavers were pervious. It's just kind okay. of impervious to, to impervious. Um, I, it's a slight change. Um, I'll show you the kind of featured street. If you look at the screen here on the right, if you can see my cursor, um, kind of these streets had pavers on them instead of asphalt. Um, and so that is, that is a change. It, you know, I think it, it was a, you know, a very upgraded feature of this street, but I think the, the pedestrian ways along here will still have pedestrian pavers and they'll still be um, very nice landscaping and um, it, it's consistent with the surrounding development too. So um, we felt that it was a, a justifiable change given the you know, maintenance burden on a future homeowners association, but it doesn't have any impact on the overall imperviousness of the site, which isn't something we typically would analyze um, except in certain areas of the county, in special protection areas. Okay, so I'm interpreting that we had some sort of uh, beneficial aesthetics that we're getting rid of in terms of the street treatment, but we're actually kind of bringing that in line with what you would expect for a street to Correct. look like. Correct, yes. The, okay. the surrounding neighborhoods all have the typical yep. asphalt streets okay. and concrete sidewalks. But and this will still have some specialty pedestrian treatments. Yeah. Um, the second point is, and this, this may, I, I'm looking at this in relation to the phasing change for phase 2A and 2B. When I look at this site, I see an incredible eyesore right in the middle of it, which is on a, a massive pile of dirt that's higher than the townhouses and bigger than a townhouse stick. And if I were looking on this site, either as someone in the community that has to look at that or residents that start moving in in the phasing situation, I'm just wondering if there's anything related to the phasing that can involve, you know, reduction of that because um, I, I appreciate there are engineering and landscaping requirements here, but it seems like this is going to be around for a while and that that could be an improvement to the, the community. Um, let me see if I understand your question is about the the kind of construction phasing? I'm, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand okay, well, the question. Okay, well, I, I went out and looked at the site, and the thing okay. that's unmistakable in the middle of the site is this massive right. pile of dirt, okay. which looks like it's been there for a while and looks like it's going to be there for a while. But what I'm concerned about is can we reduce that eyesore, essentially, uh, with more thoughtful treatment, phasing, whatever, without undoing the engineering for the site? 
Yeah, I, I think we can have the applicant address some of the specific phasing concerns. I mean, I, to some degree, I think it's inevitable with a construction project that there'll be big piles of dirt somewhere. Um, but yeah, I'll see if the applicant has any responses to that. Okay. Concern. I, I will admit that this is something of an aspirational ask, um, and it's not really in your control, but I figure by bringing it up, sure. the people that can do something about it will hear about it. Sure. Thank you. I can I can jump in here. This is uh, Jeff Driscoll with Toll Brothers rep uh, representing the applicant. Um, I know the stockpile that you're referencing, Commissioner, um, that's a, it's a result of the engineering phases as we have them right now. We are actively pursuing approvals in our phase two area, which we expect a sediment control and stormwater management approval in early 2023. And as soon as we have that approval, we'll have additional LOD that we can then move that stockpile into its final location. So right now we're just hamstrung. All of phase one is on grade. It generated that pile of dirt and we have nowhere else to take it until phase two can be opened up. So it's, it's a short-term um, eyesore and it should be resolved, I would expect in the next couple of months. Okay. Thank you. Uh, with, with that, I'll entertain a motion to approve the amendments. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I move that we approve the amendments to um, uh, amendment number 12016029A and the site plan amendment. I believe we need two separate actions. Okay. okay. So. All right. We'll, okay. We'll, well, well, then just that one. <laughs> Do I hear a second? I second that motion. Any further discussion? Hearing none, all those in favor say aye. 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 It's unanimous. Uh, do I hear a second motion? Yeah, Mr. Chairman, I move that we approve site plan amendment number 8201701B. Do I hear a second that motion? All right, I hear a second. Uh, no discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 Uh, that's unanimous. Thank you, uh, Mr. Applicant from afar, wherever you are. and. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Ms. Teitelbaum, and excuse me again, I'm so sorry. I should never <laughs> assume you. anything. I, um, with that, thank uh, you. We're, we're ready for uh, item seven whenever I'm told we're ready for item seven.
good morning. This is the December 1st uh, session of the Montgomery County Planning Board. We are on item 7, the shops at Treville, uh, site plan number 8202201140. This is a public hearing, although we, I don't think we have any speakers. Uh, we'll hear first from Mr. Casey. I'm, I'm, I'm being hesitant these days. Okay, I'll say staff from now on. I'm sorry. Yes, def definitely Please. Mr. Casey. Um, uh, good morning. Um, Please, please be nice. Uh, it's my first time in front of you. Um, so this is uh, Shops of Travilla, uh, Site Plan 8, 2022-0140. Uh, uh, staff is recommending approval with conditions of the site plan. Uh, this application includes uh, the construction of uh, a retail service establishment building as well as a daycare. Just to orient you, uh, the site is on the south side of Travilla Road, uh, west of Piney Meeting House Road. Um, around it, or the, to the south, is the uh, Rockville Crushed Stone Quarry. Um, there's R200 zone property on the surrounding sides, with the exception of the east side, which is NR uh, Neighborhood Retail, as well as the subject site. Um, so the, uh, the site itself is, uh, right now it's a parcel that will be recorded as a lot as part of the previous approved preliminary plan. Um, it does have frontage on Travilla Road. Uh, right now there's no real singular access point. It's just an open access point. Um, and there is a, are some existing uh, commercial buildings. Um, it was brought to my attention that uh, in, actually in March of 2022, a number of those buildings had been demolished. Um, which the applicant was allowed to do. Uh, it was permitted as, as part of the preliminary plan. Um, and there was, as part of that demolition, um, one of the foundations actually created a bit of a, it's a hole uh, that had filled with water. Uh, it is not a wetland um, that the NRI FSD identifies um, those type of features. This was just a result of um, the demolition process. And the applicant hadn't, uh, didn't have a, a stockpile of dirt on site to use to fill it, unlike our previous applicant. Um, and then uh, also a, another reason for removing the buildings was really safety um, and avoiding uh, trespassers. That was an issue. Um, So as far as the previous approvals go, uh, there was a concept plan at one point. Uh, the applicant took our comments uh, from that concept plan and came in and submitted a preliminary plan to create a uh, recorded lot um, for this development. Um, one of the, I would say the, the, the big sticking point uh, at preliminary plan was the construction of this uh, proposed offsite sidewalk here um, due to limited right of way uh, it was, there was a lot of uh, coordination that, that went into that, um, which I'll, I'll get into in a little bit more detail on the next slides. I do want to mention that uh, we have had uh, correspondence from a, a citizen uh, who was concerned about uh, possible uh, air quality issues related to the quarry, uh, as well as the use of explosives. Um, 
So uh, explosives-wise, um, they could be in a truck on the road, or they could be, you know, used on on the site. As far as proximity to the daycare itself, if they're coming in on the entrance, it it could be fairly close to the to the daycare. But um, in the staff report, I did identify uh, 2,500 square feet or 2,500 linear feet as the, the separation because of the location of the active blasting area, which is identified in yellow. Um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure uh, how uh, the community member measured the 1,000 feet. Um, really, they, they would have to tell you where, where exactly they measured it from. But I went on based on the, the blasting area. Um, as far as the uh, dust concerns, um, air quality is highly regulated on, on multiple levels, um, starting with the, the state license for the quarry, um, which I, I attached uh, a bunch of the uh, documentation to, to the staff report. Uh, and the Department of Environmental Protection does review an annual quarry license certificate, basically says that everything is in compliance. Um, past that, uh, any additional you know, study is, is kind of outside of the scope of, of the site plan review. Um, we are looking at the subject property um, not and how that impacts the surrounding area, not necessarily vice versa. Um, but the, we did look at the um, certification process and there's a, a license or a certificate for pretty much every single thing on that site. Uh, so finally, we made it to the, the site plan. Um, so these are the two buildings that are being proposed, uh, the retail building being in the, the front or center of the property, uh, surrounded by a uh, patio paver area. Um, that is the primary amenity open space on site. Uh, it, it serves to activate uh, the, the retail building um, for, you know, with seating, shade, um, and then that can be also be used by patrons of the daycare. Um, in order to improve access, uh, as well as uh, even drainage in this case, uh, the applicant is constructing curb and gutter along the frontage with a singular access point. Um, which is an improvement from uh, what is currently out there right now, which is basically a continuous asphalt that meets the road. Um, and that they're also installing uh, stormwater management uh, on site. <clears throat> Excuse me, I do want to point out that um, right here is uh, an existing bus stop that the applicant is um, improving which was determined at the preliminary plan, but I wanted to identify that also. Um, and then six-foot sidewalks would be provided along the frontage as well as off-site to continue a connection to uh, Piney Meeting House where there are existing sidewalks already. Um, there was a uh, question about the uh, rec recreational area for the uh, daycare. So there, there are no specific requirements under um, in the zoning ordinance for this particular case for an outdoor area or play equipment. Uh, this is really comes down to the, the state license. Uh, in order to operate the daycare, they have to get a license from the state. Um, and 
this particular user, I believe, has quite a bit of experience uh, in in the daycare business as well as in the county. Um, and they have provided a roughly 9,000 square foot plus uh, open area in the rear of the property, which is fenced, as you can see. Um, and they will be providing equipment, but it is not necessarily required by this site plan. That, that's why it was not featured um, on the plans or um, in the, the staff report itself. Oh, uh, sorry, I did want to mention that um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself now. Uh, as far as the buildings go, um, as you can see, they're very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, the, top, the top image is essentially where, as you pull into the site, uh, this is what you'll see. Uh, they've got three-sided architecture with um, these two most prominent sides are uh, open to the amenity open space and patio area. Um, and then the rear building, the daycare, um, while not illustrated in the top image, uh, does have uh, architectural features that are, um, I would say, in, in scale with the surrounding uh, development. And as a user, if you're going to the daycare, um, as you come in, you, you know where you need to go. It's a, there's a logical circulation on site, and that architecture helps to kind of draw your eye to uh, your destination. So frontage improvements, um, as I mentioned, the applicant is uh, providing an off-site sidewalk, um, and the details of that sidewalk have, have taken quite a bit of work, surprisingly, um, and coordination with multiple agencies uh, just due to the limited right-of-way. Uh, fortunately, uh, after a lot of work, uh, they did find a way to create a six-foot sidewalk fully within the right-of-way that doesn't require any impact to the private property, um, and, and that goes for grading, uh, even temporary easements. Um, this was quite, quite challenging, more than you would expect. Um, uh, and that, so that offside sidewalk will connect to the sidewalk at, at Piney Meeting House, as well as the uh, sidewalk in the front of the property. <clears throat> um, just to touch on the, as far as the, the drainage goes on site, I did mention there's going to be stormwater management. Uh, in particular, there's a, a spot right now that's kind of, I guess, the, the low side of the, the frontage right about here. Um, that will actually be uh, modified when they add the curb and gutter. Um, and they've, they've done a storm drain analysis and MCDOT has approved a storm drain analysis. So they've, they've looked at stormwater from both a stormwater management perspective as well as a uh, right-of-way and drainage capability perspective. Uh, just a show you exactly what the, uh, the amenity open space is gonna look like. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a patio paver, paver area. Uh, there will be uh, outdoor seating there. Um, it will, it'll act as a, a good gathering area for both patrons of the retail building, as well as um, you know, parents dropping off at the daycare. 
um, and it will really activate uh, the front of this, this site. Uh, only limited parking is provided in front of the building, um, and it's, it's really going to be a, an amenity for, for the site overall. Um, as far as the master plan goes, there are no site-specific recommendations. Um, but this application uh, does conform to the recommendations, uh, the design recommendations by providing an attractive streetscape as well as pedestrian connections um, and improving the uh, stormwater management on the site because currently there is none. Um, and uh, the master plan of highways, uh, they're conforming to those recommendations as well uh, by dedicating right of way uh, for Trevilla Road. I'm not going to go through each individual uh, site plan finding. Those are outlined in the staff report. Uh, but in general, this application does meet all of the necessary findings um, for a site plan. Uh, and there, there is a final forest conservation plan included with this application. Um, I think one, one element that I didn't touch on that I wanted to clarify um, with regard to the amenity open space and, and generally in the site plan data table, uh, all of the information that's in that data table is reflective of what is shown on the plans. Um, that is essentially the, the final numbers. Um, and it, what's shown in the preliminary plan column of the, of the data table is, uh, to a certain point, illustrative. Uh, if you look at the resolution, uh, we have conditions for certain elements. Um, but when we have a site plan following a preliminary plan, uh, a lot of times we ask the applicant to just show us that they can meet the requirements for site plan, such as tree shading at the preliminary plan stage, just so we aren't approving a lot that can't ultimately accommodate all of the requirements at site plan. And, uh, my, very minor uh, corrections in my in my haste to replace prior to uh, with before as in an effort to uh, you know improve plain language um, seems that a couple of twos escaped me uh, so those are being eliminated on the resolution thank you you're welcome in which case you did a great job presenting in your first time <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, if you are finished, I'll hear from the applicant if the applicant has anything to say. Um, good morning. For the good record, morning. Casey Cerner with the law firm of Miles and Stockbridge on behalf of the applicant WHM Travilla LP. Uh, to my right is Bill Magruder, who is a representative of the applicant. And to my far left is Mike Magruder, also a representative of the applicant. To my direct left is, is Scott Wolford with Collier's Engineering. Uh, we agree with the staff recommendations and appreciate all of Mr. Casey's work on this project through preliminary plan and site plan and um, support the recommendation of approval, obviously, and we're here to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you very much. Uh, do I hear anything from the board? Yes, uh, Commissioner Branson. Actually, I think, I think Commissioner Pinero had his hand up first. Did you have oh, something? Did, well... I'll ask a few questions, if you don't mind, yeah. Um, does Amy also have questions? Yes. So Why don't we let Amy go first, because sometimes we just don't see her when she's virtual. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Amy. 
Uh, you have oh, to unmute muted. yourself. Unmute that. Sorry, area. the question is for the applicant. It doesn't. It doesn't change the approval or not. I just wanted to ask, out of curiosity, do you have a tenant yet uh, to occupy the uh, the restaurant space? Do you know who that would be? Uh, we we do not. Um, my anticipation okay. is is that once the uh, once the activity starts on site, uh, that is typically when we'll we'll see the leasing activity start. We've got some ideas, and you know, some are aspirational, some are, are more realistic. Um, but I, I think it's going to be an attractive site for for a good user. Okay, so based on the size, you you know, what like sort of type of group of of uh, restaurant or chain would you expect? Um, so I, I, we, the good thing is we've built some flexibility into the size. There's it can be cut up into four spaces, um, really with with the entrances the way they are, um, and we have some flexibility to, you know, to to accommodate a, a larger, um, you know, that, that a larger one maybe a, a a chain style, but I would I would expect this will be a a more of a local uh, a local okay. firm. Um, there have been some concepts that we've heard that have integrated. Um, and actually, we have we have a, a new tenant going in one of our other other projects that integrates a restaurant and market theme, which I think would be great mm. here. So, nice. um, we, again, yeah. we have the flexibility to do that where the uses can be separate or or the same. Okay. Th thanks very much. Thank you, Commissioner Panera. Sure. Um, first of all, let me ask you about uh, the um, whether you've have or have thought about conducting like a traffic study of people going into that property or living. Um, I mean, I know that Travilla, I think Travilla is a one lane road each way. So assuming that some mm -hmm. people may be turning left on Travilla to go into the, into your property, is that, is that a concern? Uh, during the preliminary plan process in this project, uh, a comprehensive traffic study was undertaken by Grove Slade and reviewed by planning staff. Mm -hmm. And um, we have incorporated the road improvements that would be necessitated by the number of trips that would be generated by this project. Of course, there was an existing small retail uh, building here with occupants, and so the traffic generated by that a retail center uh, vested and actually we're just looking at the new trips that would be generated by the additional square footage of retail in the daycare. Um, and so based on the preliminary plan of review, the planning board did find there were adequate public facilities to serve the proposed uses. Okay, thank you. My other question has to do with the, um, I mean, there was a question whether you had a tenant already for the, for the commercial property, but for the, um, for, for the daycare center, I heard from the staff that there's already someone interested for that and it's someone that has experience. Have they, thought, have they given you any more information about how many children, the ages, are they in the process of maybe trying to get a state license? I don't, I don't know what the getting a state license um, is, is all about, but I would imagine that the uh, state uh, regulator may have questions about the noise, the, the, the query, you know, things that some of the neighbors uh, or somebody uh, made a comment about. But um, that's one question I have, whether you've already 
identify um, somebody a tenant for the daycare center the other question is about parking I mean obviously there's going to be shared parking between people using the daycare parents coming in to drop in their children and you also have the commercial establishments I don't know how many parking spaces you have contemplated whether there's going to be enough whether you know in terms of circulation because I know that you're using some area for um, for putting I guess tables outside so you're taking some of that space out of the entire development uh, but if you can address those two questions uh, sure. Um, to, uh, Mr. Magruder can elaborate on this, but yes, there is a proposed tenant for the daycare center. Um, it will be a Primrose Daycare Center, and the preliminary plan approved the use for 195 children. And it's my understanding that the center will be for, um, you know, preschool age children ranging from infants, toddlers to before um, preschool as well as possibly before and after school care there as well. So it would be what would seem to be a typical daycare center to cover all of the ages from six months up to school-aged children. Um, and yes, yeah, so the provider does have experience obtaining a state licensure, which is um, a process that they do have to go through in order to um, operate the facility and includes on-site inspections as, as well as um, you know, yearly on-site inspections as mm -hmm. well. Um, as for, did that answer all of your questions? And do you have anything you'd like oh, to Oh, parking? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll add to that. So, um, so the, there's an inter interesting thing that I've found about daycare centers, because this is the second one that we've, that we've owned. Um, it's unlike a typical school where, you know, every 195 uh, children are coming in, and, uh, coming in and leaving at the same time. What it typically is is you have before before school care who comes in at a certain time. Then you have the the true daycare, the all all day or half day, that come in at a certain time. And what what happens with those is the people tend to park, they they because they're too young to just open the door and let the let the child walk in, so they'll park briefly and then um, walk their walk their child in and then leave. So it. The the times that the that their the cars come in and leave tend to be kind of spaced out. There, there's not a you know there's not an opening bell at, at eight o'clock and everybody needs to be in their seats. So it really doesn't pressure the parking parking that much. Um, my guess also is that the uses that we have for the retail will likely have not will not open um, that early in the morning. So then uh, you do have half day and then full day of the daycare. So that disperses the, the in and outs there. What, what we look, look forward to from a marketing standpoint is we, we see that the people that are coming to bring their children there will most likely be patrons of the, of the retail space as well. So, so we're, it, it's a true, I mean, a, a true shared parking situation where someone parks for, for, to drop their child off and go get a coffee or go to the dry cleaner or whatever, whatever the case may be. So, I mean, it is, it is the absolute, you know, truest shared parking situation I could, I could imagine. Okay, if you have any issue with the uh, state licensing for the daycare center, uh, have you considered other uses for that? Um, I, don't, I don't expect that, there, that we will have problems with that. Um, we have a signed lease with Primrose, so they're not okay. proposed, so they're, they, are, they are coming in. Um, from, again, from my experience with daycare centers, um, the, 
the largest aspects of, of uh, the regulatory process for them are access, interior space, and exterior space. Mm -hmm. And I think we meet all those. The, we've this this has all been designed by the by the National Primrose uh, Corporation. So everything that you see on there is already you know to the standards that would would need that would need to be required for the state of Maryland. So now that said, you know there's always un. Unforeseen. Yes. Um, I could see this uh, a, a medical use for this mm -hmm. uh, space okay. easily. Um, I don't anticipate that having having to happen. But by our nature, we we are pessimists and, and always want to look at what you know a secondary uh, plan would be, and that that would be what my, okay. my assumption would be. All right. Well, thank you very much, Commissioner Branson. Yeah, I have, I have a couple questions, um, sort of similar. Um, I didn't notice a um, anything for car charging. I mean, there will be people who are working at the daycare all day long, um, so I'm wondering if, if there can be provisions for car charging stations, please. Anybody, um, feel free. Yep. Okay. Ask. Well, no, I, 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 there are no there are no requirements in here, but but um, I think by uh, nature of business. They're being added in, you know, many places. Um, we actually we have a, another shopping center, relatively close to here in Gaithersburg, that um, when we do our next uh, renovation of the of the, you know, the grounds, there's not a whole lot of area to, to work with, but but uh, charging station will be a strong uh, consideration there. So, although it's not a uh, it's not in there as a requirement. Um, you know, I, I think from a marketability standpoint, that that would be a strong consideration for us. Um, can that be a condition for us? I mean, what doesn't the county have a requirement that if you have so many parking spaces or something, you have to have car charging? Depending upon the size of the parking lot. And so do we meet this or what? No. 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 It's not okay. Well, I would strongly recommend it. Um, it's, it's the the other thing I would. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I was just going to add Sandra Pereira for the record, um, regulatory supervisor. Um, correct, they do not, uh, it's not required for this application to provide those uh, car ch charging stations, but the applicant can choose to do it at um, a later time if they, if they so wish. Okay. Um, Thank you. I, I think it would be a great idea, um, I don't know. Um, the other thing is that um, you mentioned, it, it says in the, in the proposal, when it references daycare, it's, I think it says 30 Plus, persons. Than, 30 more than. Yeah, and so, so I think if, if we're really looking at 195, you know, there so, should be, you know, a, a clear mention of how many kids we're really talking about. So the, um, the over 30 is just how it's, it is the use in the use table in the zoning ordinance. Okay. Um, the preliminary plan condition does specify uh, up to 195 children. Okay. Um, and that's how essentially they, they could do 30 children if they wanted, or they could go up to 195. I don't foresee them. Because that. that's the licensing issue. It's like after 30, it's like. Well, it is, it's, it's really uh, just how the zoning ordinance defines okay. it anything over 30 fits into you know the the larger scale daycare okay. and then you have smaller categories below it 
And then finally, I want to ask um, actually about this. If I didn't realize that we're, they were talking about before care and after care and all day care and all that. Um, so, so now you're really talking about buses. I mean, there's got to, you know, kids are coming before and after and all that. You're really talking about buses moving through this property, right? And I'm trying to understand how that's going to work. Uh, potentially, but not. But there's no plan for for buses with this facility. Oftentimes, well, I guess I I just don't understand how the kids will get from school to the daycare for aftercare if they're not buses. Well, oftentimes daycares do utilize vans or some sort of smaller vehicle other than a bus to transport children if this facility does have before and after. And I'm wondering, does that affect um, knowing that there will be vans moving through this um, parking lot? Does, does that affect anything? Because we're not just talking about cars anymore. We're now talking about vans or buses. For the record, Patrick Butler, uh, the parking lot would be suitable to allow maneuvering of vans, and if anything, the van would actually reduce the number of trips that were then yeah. anticipated because they weren't originally evaluating for, for vans. We're, you know, evaluating for vehicular trips through the site. Right. I so mean, if but anything, as I a think practical matter, we're talking before care, after care. There, there shall be sure. vans. I mean, it just doesn't yeah. work otherwise. No, right? they are designed to, uh, the, this circulation is designed to accommodate the maneuvering of the largest uh, fire truck that we have in, in the county. So okay. they can, it can definitely accommodate the van circulation as well. Okay. And, and just for the record, I would like to, you know, state my real deep concern about this um, air quality issue. And I really hope you all get this worked out before, be, before the licensing. Um, this is this this is troubling so that's about it for me thank you commissioner hill you have more yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll try to make this quick um hearing the description of usage and sort of you know people coming at different times i'm actually concerned if this is overparked in terms of design um any concern about that uh, this is actually part to the zoning ordinance requirement okay um, so we do meet the code requirement for the requisite number of parking spaces. All right. So it's a regulatory matter if, if it does exactly. occur that way. But, yeah, it, uh, um, okay. Um, there are staff represented, and I'll just ask you the question. There are some features that related to outdoor uh, play equipment that really aren't represented here, some fences probably that will back up against the, the forested land um, that, that would come into the site as well. Uh, yes, the play area or the open space for the daycare will be fenced in, and then the daycare will utilize its own play equipment. Okay. Um, I understand from the other site that this operator has that they use um, some little tykes outdoor play equipment to address, you know, the different ages for children. Um, but it is not shown on this site plan because it's not within an amenity open space to the public. It's part and enclosed okay. for the use of the okay. specific daycare. And I'm not particularly concerned about it because it backs against a space that I think is going to stay non-residential, so we're not impacting other people. But that was my, my correct. concern. Correct. Correct. Um, this may be more a question for staff, but let me just start out here. Just as a layperson looking at the stormwater issues on the frontage, uh, it does appear that some of that stormwater handling has to happen off-site the, the little bit west of this 
Um, and is there any concerns? I particularly was concerned about the standing water on the road after a not particularly big rain event and the safety of the road for that. And I'd, I'd like to hear that that's getting solved. And it, as this is handled, because I don't perceive the other properties involved are going to be handled anytime soon. Yeah, I think that um, in general, when, when they introduce the curb and gutter, it is actually going to more or less eliminate that area so that that low portion um, will no longer be low. Um, but they are making some improvements on the uh, storm drain system. Um, I, stormwater is, is not my profession, so uh, I, I would defer to the applicant's engineer as far as the specifics on water conveyance to offsite. Hello, this is Scott Wolford with uh, Collier's Engineering. We do have a, a uh, site development stormwater concept plan approved for the site. Um, so we're handling all the water that we are supposed to handle on the site. Um, the other thing is there's the whole frontage of the site today is all paved and all asphalt. And you can enter the site and leave the site wherever you want to. So we're removing almost all that pavement and channeling all the, the ingress and egress to the site to one location, which lines up with a driveway across the street, which is what we're supposed to do. We're introducing a decent amount of, of, um, of green space into that area, um, which will reduce the amount of runoff. We're capturing the runoff currently now that all leaves the site and goes into onto the public right away, treating it on site and then releasing it through a storm drain system improvements that we're proposing for the site. But we are also dedicating right away and then doing improvements along the public road with a closed curb and gutter and storm drain system out there to take care of the better channel of the water um, away from the travel areas. Okay, I guess my concern is that um, I understand what you're saying about treating on site, but if you're moving it to this other location that has to drain, that seems to be the area that's backing up and causing water on the road. Um, so we may just be moving it a little less volume because of the, the situation, but we're still moving to a place that I think needs some treatment to be safe for the road. Yeah, again, for the record, Patrick Weller. So I, I'm going to say it a little bit differently, but I think what, what uh, Scott was trying to say was uh, they are treating their frontage and improving that situation, uh, installing storm drains where they don't currently exist. So I think the condition that you saw on site in the pictures that were sent uh, is going to be dramatically improved. Um, I, I'm not going to say that it's going to fix all of the condition along Travilla Road, not in front of this property, but um, they're, they're also not responsible to go out and, and fix the frontage in front of other people's properties that aren't associated with this. So that, if there's a, a concern about um, some existing condition of pooling, we can certainly share that with uh, Department of Transportation and say, you know, this segment may be, a portion of it may be uh, fixed by this, but there are some other spots in, surrounding the subject property that perhaps need attention and um, could be a, a safety issue. So I wouldn't say that they are the, the applicant's responsibility. I think we need to communicate with MCDOT then outside the scope of this application uh, to, to bring their attention to that. Yeah, I guess I'm having a logical consistency problem with the idea that we install public sidewalks off the site for the public good, but we're not taking care of public safety off the site related to this um, particular area. Yeah, again, I think I think we are to a certain extent. I, I, I'm not going to say that we're fixing all of the problems along Travilla Road. I, I yeah, I'm, I'm not suggesting we fix all of them, but this one's very proximate to the site. And, and well, okay, you've answered the question. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and um, 
The last thing, just because the public has submitted to this and it seems to be a concern, Mr. Casey, you gave us a diagram that said, you know, 2,500 feet to the active blasting zone. And I'm imagining the difference that the community might be citing may be to the edge of the quarry, which could be a potential future blasting zone, right? So I think we need to be uh, cognizant of that. But I do understand the regulatory framework that we're operating under. And I would point out that um, this is really a bigger issue to this whole area, right, that you have basically an industrial site that frankly does some dangerous stuff, right, blowing things up um, with homes that are basically come in after the fact as a, to a pre-existing condition. So I don't particularly think that the, the hazard here is greater than the background hazard. That doesn't make it good. And certainly having children here is a, a particular public concern and a vulnerable population that we need, do need to concern ourselves with. Um, but I, I, I guess that's more an explanation for anyone in the public looking at this than, than a question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, explosives, um, in general, they're, they're kind of concerning. Uh, but in this particular case, my, my understanding is that the core is actually at kind of the latter half of its life cycle. Um, and I don't believe there are any plans to blast any closer. Uh, I would have to confirm with you know, someone uh, in the company, but based on the information they have online, I believe this area may be their last area they could actually blast. Otherwise, um, they have a number of structures uh, up here, like their offices and stuff. I don't think they would be moving um, any, any closer. And in that case, the, the state would be reviewing additional permits, and it would come to DEP. And, um, and that, that's the point. Yeah, I'm going to jump in again, Patrick Butler. So I, I think uh, we're not trying to minimize the fact that there's a daycare here. I think we're equally concerned about the existing residents uh, and, and, yes, future development and proposed development. So I think the way we handle that is through the annual certification process. And um, if there are, are issues, uh, concerns, regardless of where the blasting and mining is actually occurring on site, that um, that would be handled through that uh, annual recertification process for the quarry. Um, and, and again, regardless of how this plan moves forward today, um, I, you know, that, I think that's the most appropriate way to, to handle that to, pre to protect the existing residents, let alone uh, future. Uh, so that, that would be my suggestion. Again, if we have concerns, if anyone listening has concerns, uh, let us know, and we'll, we'll make sure that DEP and others, uh, through the annual certification process, can review whatever those concerns are before uh, granting those certificates. Thank you. Okay, I think that concludes our discussion. Um, uh, can I hear a motion? Mr. Chair, I'll move that we um, approve uh, site plan 82022-0140 for the shops at Treble Off. Uh, you missed all that Second. on the record. I, <laughs> as recommended, with the conditions. We are embracing we are embracing the recommendations as well as the findings that are in the staff report uh, for this approval. And and thank you, second. Commissioner Price, for the second. Uh, it, it's always good we get emotional and embrace things. I think. Uh, so um, uh, with with that, uh, uh, can I? All those in favor say aye. 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 Uh, unanimous. Uh, thank you very much for uh, bearing with our questions here. Uh, and that concludes that item. If my commissioners would like uh, five minutes.
Yes. Okay, we will take a short recess uh, and reconvene at 11.15. Simonize your watches. Thank you.
good morning. This is still the December 1st uh, session of the Montgomery County Planning Board. We are on item 8, uh, Bernard uh, Properties Preliminary Plan number 1-1997-040-B. Uh, uh, it is a public hearing at which we have no speakers. Is that correct? Yes? Okay. Um, we'll first hear from staff. Hi, everyone. I'm Alexandra Dupre. I'm a regulatory planner, too, at the Upcounty Division. This is actually my first time ever in front of the planning board, so hello. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, this is for the Barnard property application, preliminary plan amendment. It's number 1199740B. And this is a plan validity extension, so extending the amount of time that their preliminary plan is valid for. So a brief overview of the application. Um, it is a preliminary plan amendment requesting an extension of the preliminary plan's validity period by an additional 18 months from the initiation date of this amendment. Um, so I also wanted to mention that I realized in the staff report that I had put the incorrect acceptance date as April, um, and it was actually accepted September 21st, 2022. Um, April is when they had submitted it. So a bit about the site location. The subject property consists of two unplatted parcels, making up a total of 30.2 acres. The property is zoned residential state 2C, or RE2C, as well as the surrounding properties. It falls under the 2006 domestic Damascus Master Plan, and it's located at the terminus of Bonnie Brook Lane, east of Seneca Springs Local Park. It's currently developed with a single-family home and detached garage, which will remain. The surrounding properties, as I mentioned, are also zoned RE2C with single-family detached residences. It's located within the upper Great Seneca Creek watershed. It has 4.2 or 4.65 acres of stream valley buffer, 3.85 acres of high priority forest, and a total of 10.3 acres of forest on the property. <coughs> So a bit of background on the preliminary plan. The preliminary plan that covers the subject property was originally approved by the planning board in March of 2009. The preliminary plan approved the subdivision of the property for 12 lots on 30.2 acres of land at the terminus of Bonniebrook Lane. There is an outlot for stormwater management and a public use trail easement on the preliminary plan, both along the southern portion of the subject property. Through a series of automatic extensions, the validity period was extended from April 2012 to April 2022. And this amendment to the preliminary plan will not change the original preliminary plan. So on our analysis and findings, according to the subdivision regulations section 542H3, the applicant may receive an extension to the preliminary plan validity period if the occurrence of significant, unusual, and unanticipated events beyond the applicant's control and not caused by the applicant have substantially impaired the applicant's ability to validate the plan. 
In keeping with this requirement, the applicant states that unexpected delays have occurred due to reasons beyond their control, and this includes significant health crises and considerable market uncertainties. So just to summarize, in um, the preliminary plan amendment for the extension of the validity period was received timely. The request is justified with significant, unusual, and unanticipated events uh, provided by the applicant, and 18 months is an adequate amount of time for the applicant to go and record their plots. So with the amendment, it complies with the subdivision regulations, the domestic Damascus Master Plan, and has adequate access and public facilities to serve the proposed lots. Applicable county agencies have previously reviewed and approved the preliminary plan, and so therefore, staff recommends approval to extend the validity period of this preliminary plan by 18 months. Thank you for that. There are no speakers on this, correct? Okay. Uh, so the public hearing is closed. Commissioner Hill, you have something? Yeah, I, I just have a clarification. Mr. Dupre, you said that the submission was in September. The right? submission was in April, so they made it by the cutoff, um, at which period afterwards um, their preliminary plan would have expired. Yeah, okay. So they that, made that, it. That's, that, that was my concern. Okay. When you said September, I was like, but they ended in April, so they, they got under the wire. Okay. Um, I'll, let me just continue the questions then. So, um, and you've just said, uh, um, you may be consulted. <laughs> um, there's a disagreement between what you've written and what you've told us, right? So you've said that you need 18 months to get all the plats done, and what you wrote in your submission was that you wanted to make an amendment to the plan and then get plats done. And I'm wondering which of those is the condition of this action. Potentially, we would make an amendment. Uh, but that would come after this meeting. Today, we're just here to, re to reinstate or keep the current plan approval intact. And we could, and we could certainly continue and, and record the lots as they've been approved. Okay. Um, there are some other factors related to some neighboring properties that might require, suggest an amendment might be appropriate, but we would come back for that if that became the case. Okay. Um, there were... Just one comment. I think, Chair, you said the record was closed, but the record continues to be open now. I am, forgive me, I, I was in error. I, I neglected the applicant's uh, statement and the ability to comment on the, what we're doing. So the record remains open. Um, can you elaborate what the hardship of not getting this extension could be? Sorry, my grandfather purchased this property in 1950, and my mom was raised there. And as his kids grew up, they each got a lot and built a house. You'll see the three houses that are on the outside. I live in the first home that was a detached home, and it's fondly known as the Hill, the family compound. Uh, she raised us there. I raised my kids there. And our hope is to continue that with family. We don't 
not that we don't like people, but we just want our family to be together and to have the opportunity for my kids to now build and other build, building. My brother, my aunt and uncle, and my mom are all my neighbors. And so to put the hardship in words, we have put so much into this um, to make it happen so that it could stay in a family. Uh, to me, that's like a huge hardship. Did that answer your question? Well, you can get more specific. I mean, <laughs> you, you gave me a narrative of the situation, okay. but um, I'm looking for um, what if what would happen next if this uh, if this is not extended. It's been 13 years. Um, Commissioner Hill, yes. I'm happy to address your question. So okay. essentially, if it wasn't approved today. Um, their application would go null, their preliminary plan would expire, and so they would have to start from scratch is how they would have to move forward. Which could not, I, I, I mean, I don't know that we could do that. I, I guess, I, but my question was about hardship, right, not about what happens next. Um, and the standard, I believe, is exceptional and undue. Um, so I'm struggling with, with calling this exceptional um, or undue. So if I answer, is it better? So we have, we diligently have tried to get this done. And then we have had a series of really unfortunate misfortunes in our family where we have not been able to continue pursuing the things so that we're prepared. Um, these were health issues that were glad that have been gone resolved but you certainly had to hear your attention to the health issues at the time so we weren't able to continue moving forward to get it to done so if it wasn't approved i don't i don't think that we could you know, do this again are you done no. uh, commissioner branson yeah i just so this is just for staff. Um, I need to understand the um, significance uh, legally of calling it a fa family compound. Is that is that a special term? And and if so, um, how is it enforced? I mean, if if there there are twelve. I think there are 12 different lots here. I mean, we, we, so we can't enforce this after. The, I, <laughs> I didn't draft that as a, a legal term. Uh, that was straight out of their, uh, their SOJ, what is statement of justification. Okay. Oh. So it's not a, um, so just to be clear, I mean, we could approve this and there's like no requirement that all 12 lots stay within the ownership of this family. I, I just am trying to be clear on that because we're That's calling correct. it a family compound. So. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Mrs. Ms. Branson, I just want to let you know, one of the lots is where I currently own, and I live on the, the Rambler with the detached. That was my grandfather's house, so I live there. I don't hope to go anywhere. Oh, no, I understand. Okay. I'm just trying to understand, you know, because what we do sets... Um, potentially sets precedents and standards for other, you know, for other things, right? And and so I just I just think the record should be clear about what this means versus what that means, so that you know people out in the world will understand what we're doing and why. I 
understand. Thank you. Commissioner Panera. Yes. Um, good morning, still. Um, I mean, I hear your concerns and I can empathize uh, because I, I feel that you're be being very emotional to us about what your situation was. Um, given that situation, I just want to ask you, are you, if, if we approve this extension, are, do you feel that you're in a situation right now that economically or financially, whichever way you want to call it, you're in a position that you could do the 12 lots for your family? I mean, that's, it seems like right. this is what yeah. you're intending for. But do you feel that you're in a situation that you could do the I, development? I am. I have uh, gone back. Now that I've raised my kids, I'm back at work in a job that, uh, mm -hmm. that I'm fortunate that I would be able. I work for the government for an IST. Yeah. And so now I have a regular income where I would be able to. I mean, what I, what I would hate is if, if you come back to us. I don't think I could come uh, back to yeah, you. you I mean, yeah, this is us. Exactly. I mean, so this is the first is, time, and trust me, I didn't sleep at all last night. Yeah, um, yeah. No, and we don't want to uh, waste, you know, your time and our time. Um, so, so you do feel you're in a position that you could do what you're planning to do. For everything I know, moving forward, yes. I mean, I don't know if if there's something you want to say to comment. I mean, that's. I mean, this is the first time they've asked for this, and yeah. yes, we, from what I'm hearing, they intend to finish this. This, this needs to get done, and that's yeah. what they want to do. Okay. All right. And yeah, my mom is now 82. Yes. She may want to see, you know, see it done. No, what okay. what you're planning to do. Anyway, thank you very much, you Commissioner Brandt. Uh, Commissioner Presley has a question. Uh, you're muted again. There we go. Yeah, I uh, uh, hope you can hear me now. And, and I'm very sorry uh, to the applicant for, for what you've gone through. I understand what it's like to have uh, health issues with family. The question I have for staff is, you know, when, when something goes on this long and then we do, uh, you know, an extension, I, I think, you know, it's uh, completely understandable to consider the situations and to provide that. My question is, what what significant changes have occurred in what would have been required in terms of either uh you know conservation preservation are there any significant changes that would would if let's say we didn't approve this and they had to reapply are there any significant changes that you can tell us about that would apply today if the pro you know if the project were to come to us afresh today yeah, uh, for the record, Patrick Butler, uh, I, can, I can answer that. Uh, I was part of the uh, subdivision rewrite team and intimately familiar with our, uh, our requirements. This is a 12-lot subdivision, so um, the frontage improvements uh, have, have not changed, uh, you know, changed very little in terms of, um, you know, not requiring a traffic study. So uh, in, in the long story short is, uh, no, I think that this subdivision uh, would be acceptable today as in its current configuration. So okay. there would I be no, really no standard, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Um, it, it, for, all, for all of the extensions, I ask myself the same question. This is the first time I've asked it on the record because that is definitely something to weigh and I'm glad to hear that it wouldn't be significantly different. That helps me to want to approve it. No, when, when, oh, I'm sorry. 
Sorry, I keep jumping in. Um, again, Patrick Butler. Uh, no, when when by the by code, when there are significant changes, that would be a concern that staff would address that we would raise, and and we might have a different position on our recommendation um, if we felt that it would be detrimental to the public or, you know, uh, etc. So if there was something, some red flag, some alarm, something staff was concerned with, uh, we we would certainly have raised that as an issue and brought that to your attention, and perhaps not recommended approval of the extension. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I see no further comments, so I'll entertain a motion. I move approval of preliminary plan amendment number 1199-7040B. For the extension. Yes, for the extension. And I second it. Okay. No further comments? No. Your mic is on. If the oh. uh, all those in favor say aye. Aye. Uh, aye. Aye. Opposed? Mr. No. Chair, I vote nay. Oh. Okay. For the reason that I cannot make finding 3A2 of significant, unusual, and unanticipated events for 13 years, and the standard for hardship does not meet um, exceptional and undue to me. So noted. Uh, okay. That includes this uh, item. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, good morning still. Uh, this is the December 1st, uh, uh, 2022 session of the Montgomery County Planning Board. We are on item nine, which is a briefing of trends in racial and ethnic diversity. Uh, and from there, I'll just turn it over to staff. 
Good morning again, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director for the Record. I just wanted to take a quick moment uh, to give a, a little introduction to this project as well as the next one that the board will hear about, the briefing on the Mapping Segregation Project. And uh, primarily just wanted to note that both of these initiatives are part of the Planning Department's Equity and Planning Agenda. Um, as I noted um, during the presentation that I gave to the board uh, during my previous Planning Director's report, in addition to looking at equity uh, very deeply as part of our master, master planning process and actually as a part of doing that, our department has developed a number of different data tools uh, that we are using um, to help inform that work. Um, these tools are also publicly available on our, on our website uh, once they are finished and so they are also resources. Uh, for any community member uh, to use. So the presentation that you will get today, I'm not going to steal the team's thunder, but the, the trends in racial ethnic, the, the trends in racial and ethnic diversity, the JIS story map, this is a fantastic resource um, that has a ton of just amazing information. Um, and then again, for the mapping segregation project, uh, that is also an example of a study that our department does. We do a lot of master plans, but we also do a number of studies that are not the same as a master plan. It goes through you know, a, a board review and editing process and a council review and editing process. The studies are an opportunity for our department to focus on a particular topic um, and do a very deep analysis. Um, oftentimes we may come up with policy recommendations, but again, they are not plans uh, that are formally adopted. They are really um, uh, uh, sort of showing our professional expertise and, and creating a resource that any entity can use. Um, and so that is basically what the Mapping Segregation Project is. It is a part of our adopted work program uh, that the County Council approved for this fiscal year. Um, but again, it will not be a plan that will be amended, you know, and formally approved by the, the board or the council. It will be, it's really a, a, an informational resource um, and a tool that we can use again to inform our other work. And with that, I will turn it over to the research team. Hi, commissioners. Uh, my name, uh, for the record, my name is Archie. Uh, oh, yeah, my mic is on. Okay. Um, for the record, my name is Archie Chen. Uh, I'm planning associate at research and strategic projects division. So as Tanya introduced, today I wanna uh, like show you a story map we recently finished. It can show you the evolution of diversity in like racial and ethnic diversity in our county from 1990 to 2020. And our goal is just to, is to provide educational resource so that uh, they, like planners, other local government um, professionals and the public can use it to understand how our residents are grouped and concentrated by race and ethnicity. So we all know like changes are happening, but it's crucial to understand like where those changes are like located. Um, so the story map um, has three sections. The first sections will walk you through like the changes in individual groups. Um, so this analysis focuses on four major groups in our population, which are Hispanic, non-Hispanic, white, um, Asian, and black. So, so those are our four major groups. Like, and we use census classifications. We acknowledge that the other race category is also like important segment of our population, but given smaller size, uh, we this analysis will not include it, but definitely it will be becoming more important as it's growing. And the second section uh, is talking about the neighborhood level shifting of racial and Hispanic concentration. So it's about like dynamics between different groups. And 
and and the third section will tell you like which group is the most common one in those integrated and diverse tracks. Uh, I will explain and elaborate those terms later. And now um, let's jump in. So first, I want to talk to you about like countywide um, patterns. So after like tremendous changes in our county, like over the past thirty years, um, right now we are becoming more diverse and. The number of people of color population um, dramatically increased, like from 28 percent in 1990 to 59 percent in 2020. And as a matter of fact, we are more diverse than the nation, than the state of Maryland, and even the DC region. So how did that happen? Um, part of the reason to this diversification is that um, our white population has been shrinking in both numbers and percentages, um, even though like they remain the largest in 2020. Um, but actually, starting from 2010, they dropped under 50%. So that means like they are not the single group majority in our county. And actually, there's no single group majority like starting from 2010, and which makes like our people of color as a group population become the majority starting from 2010. Um, and then among it, um, so Hispanic in the people of color population grow like the largest and the fastest. Actually, like from 1990 to 2020, they almost quadrupled in size. And also, um, they like grew pretty fast, like faster than the black and Asian. That's why they outpaced Asians in 2000, become the third largest, and then they outpaced the blacks and become the second largest following white in 2010. Um, and then is our Asian population. So Asian population have been growing steadily, like about um, 36,000 on average, like in each decade. And for our black population, they are also growing. Uh, but the thing is that they are growing kind of like the slowest behind Hispanic and Asians. And now like in 2020, what, we have- What is the uh, other race? Is that multiracial? Oh, so the, the other race, um, so we define as first like the other race, that'll be one single group. And then also that include American Indian and also include um, the like two and more races. So it's, so that's how we defined it. Okay. Excluding all other four major groups. And as you can see, like, yeah, they are uh, growing also. And for example, in 1990, they all, like, they have like under 1%. And now in 2020, they have 5.5%. Um, but the thing is, we don't have like separate sections for them because it's kind of small because uh, our analysis, not just like focusing on countywide, but also like going to neighborhood level. So in individual track, the size could be extremely small. That's why uh, we didn't include that in the story map. Um, so. After this like whole like high level countywide um, patterns, we want to show you um, like some maps because like Matt can showing you like the patterns of concentration and changes. Um, so we build this uh, resource in an interaction like mapping um, format. Throughout my presentation, um, you can see like how it can be used. So for example, let's um, first zoom in and let's talk about um, our Asian population. Um, so. Asian population actually had like the largest and the fastest growth in like back in 1970s and 1980s, um, and that's why um, they are having uh, they they made up like eight percent of total population in our county. And then if you see the map, that they start their growth um, in the mid county areas, especially around Rockwell, and then like up to North Potomac. 
I, I just quickly show you one usability is that um, you can like click on it and it will tell you all the statistic of other groups so that you can make comparison and see, okay, how like other groups are doing uh, while we are having Asian growing in certain areas. And then um, in 2000, um, Asian continued growing and they actually had like about 62% um, gain in size and also they made up 11% population. And Excuse me a second. What's the, what's the geography you're using here? Oh, so geography is like 2,000 census tracts levels. That oh, would be equivalent okay. to the neighborhood. Thank you. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, back in 1990, um, Asian like started their growth in the Mid County area, especially around Rockville and North Potomac. And you can see like those color, like the shades are giving dark, darker. So that's why like they are strengthening their concentration and also they are expanding. But I would say in general, and you can see like later in other maps, Asian are quite diverse, like widely across the county. Um, and then in 2010, um, so after a decades of like gains for Asian, like their growth rate has been like declining uh, more and more. And then in 2010, um, Asians made up about 14% of population. Um, and again, e even though we have their like, increasing concentration um, in different areas, but they are quite um, dispersed. And now besides like the three major areas I mentioned earlier, like around Rockville, North Potomac, and also we have like new concentration in Germantown and around Klosburgs. So what you're looking at here, mm -hmm. when you do 90, 2000, oh, I think it's on. Yeah. When you're looking at 90, 2000, 2010, and 2020, you're not looking at the change. Mm -hmm. This is just like a snapshot for those years, mm -hmm. no, in these maps. So when you, when you have 2010, it's not how it changed from 2000 to 2010. Mm -hmm. It's just what it is in, in 2010. Yes. So what I what I'm showing on the map is a snapshot in 2010. But you can oh, okay. compare the map with okay. the previous map and see because even though we have like track boundaries like change from time to time, but when when you like overlay to them together, you can see like how that each neighborhood is like having whether like growing Asian or maybe like yeah yeah okay that's how I do but definitely you're right, commissioner. And, and then now, um, let's get to 2020, like up to now. So right now, uh, we have 50% of Asian population. And again, as you can see in the map, um, they have like different areas of concentration, quite dispersed. Um, and so starting from North Potomac, they are keeping like breaking onto the west side. And also they have like more concentration around Gisburg, Germantown, also along the 270 up to Klosburg. And now um, is our black population in 1990. So black population um, is uh, in, 20, uh, in 1990 is our second largest. And their story in terms of um, dispersion concentrations is different from Asians. As you can see from the map in 1990, um, they start their growth, uh, especially at east and southeastern side of the county. And mostly, um, let me zoom in a little further. It's in like Tacoma Park area and some in White Oak and also more in the Phelan and Bridges Cheney area. Then um, to 2000, um, they keep growing and get, uh, made up about 15% of our total population in 2000. So if you remember the previous map, uh, the concentration, like 
didn't change much for black population. Um, instead of like uh, expanding to all other areas across the county, they're strengthening their concentration, like again, most in eastern side and southeastern side, but also have like new concentration area, which is uh, in the Aspen Hill area. Um, and then um, in 2010, our black population at this point um, having about 17, uh, about 16.6%. Um, and this point, they were outpaced by Hispanic and became the third largest group in our county. And continue expanding and concentrating, um, you can see like they're most focusing on, again, um, in the eastern area, also part of the Aspen Hill, which is this around like Aspen Hill, uh, Glenmore corridor areas. But we also see their concentration uh, growing around uh, Germantown and Montgomery Village. And now um, in 2020, our, public, uh, our black population made up 80% of population. So they had a 19% increase from 2010 to 2020. Um, the concentration pattern still like being consistent um, in the eastern side, major like, corridor areas around Aspen Hill, and also we have a new concentration area around Germantown. And now um, let's talk about our Hispanic population. So even though like we know Hispanic population has been growing and now they are the second largest, but actually back in 1990, uh, 1990, 1990 um, they were less than 4% of total population. Uh, and, and then they uh, and then they grow to like 7% in 1990. And at this point, um, they start their growth. I'm assuming a little bit further. Um, they start their growth in the eastern side of the Dunn County, like most in the Long Branch area, and the one you can see like this um, darker color, like darker orange uh, around like Wheaton Glamour area. So they they were growing um, pretty fast and large and almost doubled from um, 1990 to 2000. And now we have about 12% um, of total population for being Hispanic in 2000. And they are so their patterns of dispersion is like they're expanding from Long Branch and along those crowded areas. So first up to like Wheaton Glamour areas, and then um, they showing up in Montgomery Village, also an, like around the 370. In 2000, um, Hispanic um, outpaced black population and became the second largest and they also made up 70% population. So consistent with the previous decades, um, their concentration and dispersion is like they are like strengthening in three major areas like Long Branch, Wheaton Glenmar, and Montgomery Village also around Shady Grove. So now what we have for Hispanics in 2020 is that um, they made up about 21% of total population. Um, and again, um, their concentration like has been consistent, like in those three major areas. So um, for our white population, in 1990, um, they they were um, predominant um, and also like have like huge number across like almost all uh, old neighborhoods in the county. And at this point, they were 72 percent. Um, but but then they um, began to decrease at an increasing rate. And in 2000, so first, um, their share 
declined in those areas that we see like other people color groups been showing up like um, central quarter areas and also eastern side of the county but still like they remain strong at the outskirts of our county and in 2000 uh, we had 60 percent of white population and going to 2010 um, the decline of share of white population in those areas where people of color showing up has been continued. And now um, in 2010, we had um, under 50% of white population, which you can see it's a beginning of plurality for other like uh, single um, people of color groups. And then now um, let's jump into 2020. White population continue um, decrease and now it's at um, about 41% population, but they still like remain the largest in our county. And then if you see like the, their distribution, um, they especially remain um, their concentration at outskirts, like um, up north from Damascus and also Pluswell, like door, those uh, lower density uh, suburban and rural areas. And also um, actually, I mean, a fact is that um, they're also strengthening their concentration in the Bethesda and Chevy Chase areas Actually, we had like, the highest concentration, like one track in the Chevy Chase. Um, so previously, I was talking about um, the changes for individual groups. And so, for example, like when one group is growing in one area, it doesn't mean like it's leading. So that's why we used a measure of diversity to like understand the dynamics between different groups. And there are two thresholds for this measure. So first, if one single group is more than 17%, um, then we claim this group as the predominant one in a tract. And then um, if the single group like is under 70%, but more than 50%, that makes it a majority. But when one um, single group is like less than, so less than 50%, and also like there's no other single groups more than 50%, we will, we will claim those tracks um, are no majority tracks. And we and we see as equivalently, like they have certain level of integration and being diverse. And so let's see this bar chart on the right-hand side. In 1990, actually we only have 9% um, of no majority tracks, um, but, but then the number jumped from 1990 to 2000 to, to start to have 31%. And now in 2020, oh, it's 51% of our county, that means like over half of county having no majority tax and have a high level um, of integration. And now um, I want to show you like where are those um, diversity or integration been happening throughout the years. So first, um, let me, let's see um, the like bar chart on the left-hand side. Um, previously, I mentioned like only 9% of our county having no majority, which on the flip side, that means like over 90% um, of the county are having um, like one single group as predominant or majority, which is our white population. Um, it's but um, but also on the other hand, um, our no majority tracks are firstly showing up. Uh, let me zoom in. Like in the eastern side of the Dunn County, also around White Oak and one in Wheaton areas. And at this point, we only have fifteen uh, no majority tracks. Um, so 
even though a uh, white population remain the largest, but actually in those diverse tracks, they are not the one that's leading in all those like yellow tracks. And let me click on one, for example, this one we having uh, the Hispanic as um, the leading group in this one no majority tract. So um, going to 2000, our total population um, was growing, but also our people of color population were growing too, and they are growing faster. That's why, and, and that's contribute to this uh, jump in terms of size for no majority tracks from um, 9% to around 31%. And now uh, we have 50, 54 tracks in total uh, where no single group is being majority. And you, you can see the pattern for this integration is that they started from um, the eastern side of Dunn County, and then along Route 29 going to the eastern side of our county, like at the border of Prince George County, and also they along like Route 97 going to Wheaton Glenmont areas. And then we are we are seeing um, the pop the, the, the pop up of the no majority tracks are around the, the mid-county corridor areas, like around Rockwell and then Montgomery Village and also around Germantown. And also on the flip side is that um, our white population still like being like predominant majority um, at outskirts, but, but one um, achievement in this decade is that we actually have our first um, black majority track. It's in the, the Phelan and Bridges Cheney area. And then let's go into 2010. So um, in 2010, uh, if you remember, firstly, um, our white population dropped under 50%. So that leaving um, our people of color being the majority, but not just for um, the whole county, also for many places, um, like at neighborhood levels for our county. So it, so it's the first decade um, that like Hispanic population um, obtained the majority status in, in a few tracks. And... This pattern actually, uh, if you zoom in and see those orange places, um, is consistent with how they are growing in terms of size. So they attained their majority status around Long Branch and also Wheaton Glenmont. And then also like this one will be um, Montgomery, Montgomery Village. Um, for our black population, um, they having more tracks uh, with majority status and then they continue grow again um, at eastern side of county also um, east to the white oak and now um, is where we are for 2020 so in 2020 over half of the county like 51 percent of them um, is yellow which means like there are no majority tracks and have like a relatively higher level of integration. And among those, you can see um, other people of color are being the majority. And actually, if, if we click on this one, so this is the like pretty close to Fairland and Bridges Cheney area, and it's our first black predominant tract. And then for our Hispanic, um, their pattern of concentration in terms of the majority has been consistent again 
at the three major areas, but we also have our first Asian majority tract at the North Potomac. So previously, um, I was showing you those dynamics between um, different groups and in terms of their predominant and majority, but also overall like high level non-majority tract. But you may wonder like, okay, so what is the most common group in those diverse yellow tracks? And this section would give you the answer. So in 1990, we have um, 15 or more drug track, and we have this um, functionality as a slide bar that you can compare. Um, so at this point, um, when you're breaking down, it's like not just white population leading those diverse tracks, but actually they're uh, followed by black, like having five tracks with like black as the leading group, and then one track for Hispanic. And then in 2000, um, when you review it, you can see the concentration for, so firstly, uh, we have uh, Asian leading in those diverse yellow tracks as I think this area will be like around Rockwell's being the Twin Brook. And then for our black population, even though um, previously we saw like their concentration actually been continued growing in Eastern side, but actually in those diverse yellow tracks, um, been, uh, they were uh, been kind of um, distributed to other places um, up to like mid-county around Aspen Hill and also like Eastern side of the Dunn County. And for Hispanic, um, I, I would say their leading places in those diverse tracks um, are consistent with how they've been growing in these three major areas of in uh, three major areas of county, which will be Long Branch, uh, Wheaton, Glenmont, and also uh, Montgomery College around the Gisburg. And for white population, um, they are having the leading place in those diverse tracks, um, not just in outskirts of county. So in 2000, they still have this leading place uh, in those corridor areas, but. When it gets into 2010, um, those corridor areas are having um, people of color groups as the leading as the leading setters, which, for example, for um, Rockwell, Wheaton, Glenmont areas will be Hispanic, and then also they are leading in the diverse tracks around Gisburg. For our black population, um, they continue their leading place at the eastern and southeastern side of the county, but also like in Aspen Hill. And actually there we have one new concentration uh, area for the black in those diverse tracks is um, up to like Klosberg and Germantown areas. And for our Asian, um, overall you can see like they are quite dispersed, uh, one in Rockwell and one um, at North Potomac and one around Germantown. And for our white population, um, they, they're, leading place like started from center and then are expanded or pushed to kind of getting to the outskirts. And now is what we have for 2020. So in, in 2020, we have um, Asian having 13 tracks as the leading place and 26 tracks for black, 33 tracks for Hispanic and 47 tracks for white. So overall it's 119 tracks out of um, 200 32 in total, that means like um, over half the county are um, having high level of integration. And I, I wanna show you like one point is that look at like Klosberg and Germantown. So relatively um, the 
concentration like from different like four major groups are quite even in these places. So not just like let's saying um, even though like Asian are leading Klosberg, but overall in this larger Klosberg area, we having like all three, four major groups um, gathering here. So like the whole larger area here, we say have another level of integration. And so um, I want to end my presentation here, but also the overall message I want to send, I want to say is that um, our county has becoming more diverse and integrated, but the story um, is not the same for all neighborhoods in our county. And also definitely the patterns of con uh, concentration and dispersion vary by like race and ethnicity. For example, you can see uh, Asian are quite um, dispersed, like they are like they are having this leading concentration areas in a pocket places, um, but but not like having a like larger um, gathering themselves. But for black population, um, they like are strong in the eastern side and southern side. And for Hispanic, um, we see like their high concentration in Long Branch, Glenmont, and also Montgomery Village. And for white population, um, they remain strong at outskirts. And in terms of the in those diverse tracks, you can see um, they remain strong, like north from um, Clarksburg and also south of Giesburg and east to Olney. Um, and and for our population, my final thing I want to say is that, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, like they've been shrinking in numbers and percentages, but actually uh, we have a few tracks like our growing with white population. And one thing like right now, since uh, we are having the University Boulevard area like master plan going on, actually like one track in that area um, are uh, have been seen um, the growing sign of white population. Um, so um, I mean, um, thank you for listening commissioners and I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, I mean, you've given us a lot of information. Uh, I don't know if everybody's prepared for questions now or wants to submit questions. Your your choice. I have, I do have one quick one, which is this is based off census data, right? So the Asian population can't be broken down any further than that category. Uh, so for this analysis, um, Asian um, population, so that they will be like um, like Chinese and Korean, and then like all like together, and also like including Indian Pacific Islanders. So. Um, we, we did not have like a breakdown, specific breakdown for Asian for this analysis. Right, but but that, that's due to the data, right? Not something that yes, you Yes, it's due to right? the data reliability. Because yeah. my, my main concern is sort of subcontinent and Far Eastern cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Because they get lumped together, but I think that their um, properties aren't shared to the extent that they're comparable to the other groups. Mm -hmm. um, so, But if the data doesn't support that, we're not going to be able to get it. Yes. Yeah, and I just, for the record, want to chime in. Carrie McCarthy, Division Chief for Research and Strategic Projects. Yeah, we're looking at trying to do more some more detailed analysis with the most recent data because, yeah, your point's valid. We're kind of constrained by the census categories, particularly to do the historical analysis. But within each racial group, the experiences are so different. You know, there's so many different types of people. It's, it's a really kind of, I'd say, even dated way to think, cut, slice, and dice the population. Yeah, thank you for, for the presentation. I mean, this is very interesting data. Um, I mean, you use your, basically, the, the common denominator was the census tract. Did you ever think of going deeper than that into enumeration districts or more uh, breaking down some of the census tracts? I mean, would the census allow you to do that uh, and, and see if you can get more refined data? Uh, 
because I don't know whether if you look deeper than the census tract, whether you would see um, integration or segregation, whichever way you want to call it, uh, a little bit different. Uh, I'm just wondering whether uh, you have thought about that. Um, thank you for your question, uh, Commissioner Finello. So for, for if I think in the future, um, there could be a way to refine, but also actually we, we look at this approach since it's like we, we want to do like analysis for all tracks in, in a county, we do not recommend like going under like deeper, deeper. Um, like mm -hmm. below and try like block groups. Uh, but also I, I would say like for those individual master um, plans analysis or other analysis, error analysis, um, they can like try to use, for example, our measure of diversity, like to see like whether it's like any group is past 50% or 70% and to inform their decision. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. It's Branson. I worked out. And now you confuse me, Jeff. <laughs> I don't remember what I was going to say. No. Um, uh, okay, so uh, thank you. This is a lot. Um, and um, because of the limitations of the census, you're right. There's a lot we don't pick up, you know, like, um, um, I mean, the whole. You know, immigration, you know, like, you know, there are a lot of people are are, are uh, lumped together as black or lumped together as as Hispanic, but, you know, are Asian and 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 but but there are immigrant stories within that, you know, which can be pretty significant. Right. I mean, um, and, and that would be also nice to know. Right. Whether, you know, in in, in the black community. You know, very significant population from Ethiopia. You know, and and that's um, that's that could be potentially something decent to know, right? Um, but and, and that applies to you know to to all the the different groups. Um, I guess I'm concerned about. Okay, now that we know this, what does it mean, right? I mean. I'm not really convinced that it means um, that we're we we this county is becoming majority minority. Yes, I don't know if that means this county is becoming integrated, and and to me that becomes a part of the question because that potentially factors in to other things if if we're just be if if we are remaining segregated but in bigger places <laughs> then then I'm not sure um, that that's a good thing and 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 I think the other question this these numbers um, these stats raise is you know um, you said the white population is declining that's what you know we're seeing over you know as the years go by the white population declines are the the question becomes are they leaving are they're not dying off are they not having children i mean what's what's going on right i mean are we looking at white flight and and what does white flight mean does it mean the same thing for the suburbs as it meant for cities in the 60s and 70s, and and if it does, then then what can 
What can planning do about that, if anything? I mean, so so I think these numbers raise a lot of really interesting questions, I'm, and I look forward to figuring out um, what what the planning answers may be for that. And I think if anybody answers all those questions, they'll have a doctorate in this uh, well, in demographics. I know <laughs> it, it's it's fine. If, and if, I'll just chime in um, to address your question. Um, we have done some looking at some of the trends and the um, the white decline. It's it's an older population, so it's mainly driven by um, death rates and lower birth rates. Um, the uh, people of color populations tend to have higher birth rates. Um, the flight question, we did a lot of work trying to understand um, of people who left Montgomery County, who is leaving where they go, and that data is, you just can't get it, because we tried to look at the, you have to look at the rest of the country, um, and so yeah, it's, it's really, the migration, I know there's like a lot of anecdotes about people leaving, it's just really hard to understand statistically. But yeah, generally the trends are older and lower birth rates. If I can also just add a couple of things. One is, um, Commissioner Branson, you know, your point about with the black uh, category, Hispanic category, that. That encompasses a lot of people from a lot of different places. Um, and uh, this is where the community engagement that we do as part of our master plans is really valuable because that's where we can start to unpack that and understand who are the community members in particular areas where we're doing plans. So for example, for the um, recently adopted Silver Spring and Downtown Adjacent Communities Plan, we know that there is a large Ethiopian population in that area, and so we were able to do targeted outreach to those residents um, to make sure that we uh, recognize their presence and can uh, make sure that they are involved in our planning process. So that's just one example. I think also for uh, the uh, Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan and also uh, the one we're doing in Tacoma Park right now, when we're doing canvassing and reaching out to those residents, we are actually we're able to unpack that data um, and can tell, for instance, I think I had a slide um, during my previous director's report where um, from the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan um, canvassing effort where we were able to see a certain, uh, we collected data on the residents that were reached through that canvassing and there was a certain number that uh, were in the sort of African-American category and then another portion that were more the residents who have immigrated from African countries. So we are able to, to do a deeper dive at that level. Um, and then I also uh, just wanted to mention that the research team produced a, a longer study, the Trends in Montgomery County study that looked at data from 1990 to 2016. Um, that study came out in 2019. Um, but that's a really great resource as well um, that helps to unpack some of the questions in terms of, and actually provides even more data than, than what we shared um, through this presentation. And just lastly, I wanted to note uh, for any community members watching this and also for the board, because it is a lot of data, this uh, GIS story map is already on our website. So you're you know, definitely welcome to go take a look at it um, and you know, uh, do a deeper exploration. And lastly, I just want to chime in to address um, Commissioner Pinero's comment earlier. There is block group data available by race. For the purpose of this exercise, given the um, countywide scale, the length of time we're looking at, we decided to use tracks because they're a little bit easier to analyze in a historical perspective. But certainly, again, when we look at master plans, we look at the block by block numbers. Thank you. I also want to add something to what uh, Commissioner Branson mentioned because uh, it's my own life experience. Um, 
I moved to the county in 1990. I moved to the Aspen Hill area, uh, which was a diverse area. That's what we like uh, our neighborhood to be for my children. And um, we didn't, I mean, over the years, there's been white flight, no question about it. I mean, I've seen it on my neighbors. They moved to Olney, and maybe after Olney got more diverse, then they probably moved northward to uh, wherever. So, so there is, I mean, this is something that definitely it's worth looking at, the, uh, the, the issue of white flight, uh, how neighborhoods change, what they call the tipping uh, point. Uh, once you get into a diverse area. I've stayed in my neighborhood because I do like diversity. Uh, but, but then the schools have become majority minority, which, you know, how do you deal with that situation? Uh, the, the same with, you know, Route 29. I mean, we, <clears throat> we, we look in Thrive 2050 how the emphasis of wealth was directed towards 270 and not 29 and... 95. I mean, how do we, through planning, change that so that we become less segregated uh, and more integrated? I just wanted to comment on what Commissioner Benson said. Thank you very much. I think uh, Commissioner Presley has something to say. I see a hand in the, in, in the far Actually, right. Actually, <laughs> uh, now, now the commissioner previously asks my question, so, oh. Oh. you know, what do we do with this information? You know, that, I, I think that's really an important question. And um, I think becoming more granular, even if it gets presented to us, presented to future boards, master plan per master plan, that would help to know, not just um, from the purpose of numbering individuals, but how do we reach out to different community groups um, with the different mixes and make sure that voices are being heard. Noted. Well, and I was going to just note, um, again, this is Tanya Stern, that that is exactly how we can use a tool like this, um, which is to help inform our master plan development to help us understand, you know, um, the communities where we're doing plans. Um, but it's also, I just wanted to know, it is a resource for us to understand Montgomery County's history of change. Um, that's one of the things that I found so fascinating about this when I first saw it was that it told us a much richer story of, of the, the changes in the demographic, the racial and ethnic demographic makeup of this county than I was certainly aware of. And, and actually showing which parts of the county has changed in terms of where people have moved or moved away or those changes have happened. And so, you know, I just wanted to uplift Telling a, a more accurate story, a fuller story, is very valuable in and of itself. But it is very much a tool that we use for our work. Okay. I have one more comment, if I may. Um, I'm, I'm just—I've been looking at this map and thinking um, this is the standard way to present um, demographic information on geographic information, right? But the thing that gets lost in this presentation is population density, right? Because when we're talking about the relative numbers and changes. Putting it on a geographic map has these very large areas that are not very well populated that look like, you know, it's it's more or less, right? Because I, I actually wonder whether the portrayal of of what I see on the map now would look significantly different if it was if it was sized by population density, 
right? And I, I appreciate that's a challenge. It's a huge creative challenge for how to do it. But I think that might be a valuable thing to, to see visually in some variety than just seeing it by a, a, a geographic overlay because of the problem that I mentioned, right? Real point. Uh, you know, of course, the smallest census tracts are the most dense census tracts. That's right. That's so, right. So it com compounds the problem. I'm always struck by that when you see political maps <laughs> in the United States. Is you know, you have these huge color differences, but it doesn't portray. You know, if we're talking about one person, one vote, it doesn't portray that. Or right? Kansas. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for an excellent presentation. We appreciate it. Thank you. Um, we're ready whenever you are to go to the next item. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, this is uh, the December 1st uh, Planning Board session. Uh, we are on item 10, a briefing on mapping segregate on the mapping segregation project. I'll turn it over to staff from here. 
Thank you. Uh, for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy. And first, I want to begin by welcoming Commissioner Pinheiro. Uh, this is the first time that our team um, and folks from the Countywide Planning and Policy Division, I believe, have uh, presented to the board since you've joined us. So, uh, welcome. Um, so I want to begin by first thanking and uh, the the team that has worked on this. It's been an outstanding uh, set of, uh, of team members and outstanding work that they've done. First, led by our historic preservation supervisor Rebecca Ballow, and then uh, John Lieberts, who is a member of our HP team as well, and then two former contractors that we had, Jacob Chairs and Acadia Rower, uh, who aren't with us anymore, but contributed a great deal to to this project. Also wanted to take a minute to provide a little bit of context to what we're going to see today. Um, and this project, you know, is really is a key element, a uh, key project in our department's equity planning for agenda. And it really tells and maps the story of segregation in our county's history. And it's kind of interesting. It plays off pretty well with the one that you, the, the presentation you just had. Um, I can tell you, though, confidently that uh, from a broad perspective, our work in this regard to understand segregation in the county, uh, the tools that have impacted it, and the effects on patterns of growth in our county, it's far from complete. But even more specifically with regard to this project, uh, it's still a work in progress. So we met a major milestone at this point, which is why we're presenting to you today. Uh, we've completed our down county deed research, and uh, they'll pre be presenting the findings on that. But in the report, you'll also see, they'll talk a little bit about this, but there are some more stories in there about um, continued discrimination that occurred in our county's housing market, even after uh, the Supreme Court ruled in 1948 that racial restrictive covenants could not be enforced. Uh, but there were also some inspiring stories in there too about uh, efforts to overcome and rise above the uh, efforts to segregate the county. Um, so what remains in terms of what we're doing? The original scope for this did uh, call for uh, we, that, that we would track the racial and demographic profiles of areas with racial restrictive covenants into the 21st century. So that's something that we are currently exploring different ways to do that. And uh, we'll come back to the board in January or February with uh, what we've learned on that in that regard. Uh, but without preempting too much of what Rebecca and John are gonna present, I did want to say that there are three valuable outcomes of the work thus far. The first is that, and this kind of echoes what Director Stern was just talking about with the last project too, is that the first is that we now have a more accurate and uh, documented understanding of the county's history. The second is that the data that we've gathered, we're, we've made it all publicly available on our website, so it's, uh, it's available for others to, to have. Uh, and the third is that having these data uh, as a tool for, uh, to inform our future policy work and our future planning efforts is really valuable, really helpful to us. And uh, so, you know, this research was not done with a particular policy initiative or pursuit in mind. And I'll tell you that, you know, looking at the results, there is no clear single policy that, you know, obvious policy that needs to be pursued through this. But as we go forward with our future policy work and our master plan efforts, uh, these data really provide uh, us a better understanding of the context of that work that we do and could result in potential and potentially influence and shape the results of the, the products of those work efforts. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to Ms. Ballow and Mr. Lieberts. Thank you. 
Good afternoon, Rebecca Ballo, Historic Preservation Supervisor for the record. Um, I would also like to recognize um, and, and thank you, um, Jason, for recognizing the team. Um, I would also like to mention that Ben Kraft with the Research and Strategic Projects Division assisted the team um, for the last year on our literature searches and review. And the map that you see that was built out is the work product of Chris McGovern, our GIS mapping guru, who did some amazing work with this. So to get us started, um, the project scope approved by the County Council included the goal of researching available primary source materials, including HOLC data, source materials from the Federal Housing Administration, and deed covenant information. The project scope upon implementation and the most fruitful means of examining racial segregation within patterns of land use came from an analysis of racial restrictive covenants in the down county planning area and loans from the homeowners loan corporation to black residents. The initial scope of the project also includes an analytical component, looking at present-day demographics that, as Jason mentioned, will be discussed in a subsequent presentation and briefing to the planning board in early winter 2023. This presentation will outline how we arrived at our scope with a focus on redlining and the role of federal agencies. John Lieberts will discuss the project's primary objective and conclusions, the use and documentation of racial restrictive covenants. We will follow that with information related to single-family housing covenants. Then we will discuss the results of a case study where we explored the relationship of racial covenants with black home ownership in Tacoma Park. And we will conclude with our next steps and our key takeaways. And with that, I will turn the presentation over to John. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. John Lieberts, Cultural Resource Planner for the record. I'd like to start a discussion on the topic with this slide. It depicts the dramatic shift in the population of Montgomery County. Black residents went from, went from comprising 36% of the population in 1890 to 3% in 1960. And during that period, the white population increased by three, over 310,000 people, while the black population increased by 1,842 people. The team set forth to explain why this occurred and share how discrimination targeting racial and ethnic communities by the government and private citizens happened at nearly all levels of society in Montgomery County and the United States. Historians and demographers nationwide are exploring primarily three different avenues to discuss and analyze the history and legacy of, discriminatory, of legal discriminatory housing practices. Most scholarship has examined the actions of two federal agencies, the Homeowners Loan Associate Corporation and the Federal Housing Administration. Both organizations legitimized and spread redlining at the federal level and drove real estate lending and building practices to the detriment of people of color. Uh, redlining refers to mortgage lending decisions based on the location or physical characteristics of a property and its owners. Fewer researchers are documenting the use and impact of racial restrictive covenants, likely due to the labor required for such a study. Racial restrictive covenants are private contractual agreements that prohibit the sale, rent, lease, or occupation of property to particular racial, ethnic, and religious groups. You find this information in the land records, such as deeds, declaration of covenants, and agreements. The team started its investigations with the Homeowners Loan Corporation. In the 1920s, homeownership remained out of reach for many working class and middle class families. Mortgages required a substantial down payment, interest-only fee schedules, and full repayment of the loan within a short period. The depression, falling wages, and increased costs further worsened the depressed real estate industry. 
1933, President Roosevelt and Congress created the Homeowners Loan Corporation as part of the New Deal. The agency focused on acquiring distressed residential mortgages from homeowners who cannot make mortgage payments or were in danger of default. The HOLC then provided owners with new amateurized mortgages with a 15-year repayment schedule and favorable lending terms. In the last couple of years, researchers used local land records to analyze mortgages from the HOLC. An analysis of three metropolitan areas suggested that the agency may have provided loans to black residents proportional to the level of homeownership. Race, however, clearly played a role as the agency identified the racial makeup of applicants' neighborhoods and constrained opportunities within the existing patterns of segregation. And on the slide here, we have a newspaper article about the opening of an HOLC office in Baltimore and examples of properties and owners in Kansas City that received HOLC mortgages in 1933. So our project team utilized an established methodology to explore loans from the HOLC to Montgomery County residents. The process included analyzing the land record index to find who received mortgages from the HOLC, reviewing the deed information from property owners for property owners in their names, and then cross-referencing the property owners with census records to determine the individual's race. Federal records noted that Montgomery County residents had submitted 811 applications to the HOLC office. 424 of those loans were closed, which equaled approximately $2.6 million. The team documented 409 loans in the land records. We determined that 400 loans were provided to white residents, seven loans to black residents, and the race of the other two owners could not be determined. There are too few properties to draw any definitive conclusions. In 1940, black residents owned approximately 4.8% of the non-agricultural homes in Montgomery County, but received less than 2% of the closed HOLC mortgages. Therefore, the research suggests that the HOLC provided loans to black residents of the county at a lower rate proportional to their share of home ownership. We mapped the location or approximate location of each of the seven black homeowners who refinanced with the HOLC. Uh, most of the property owners live near the Lincoln Park community in Rockville. If you click on an individual pin, the pop-up, which is an example shown on the screen, shows the address, subdivision, property owner, year they acquire the land, mortgage year, and terms. In 1935, the HOLC moved to manage, sell, and liquidate its real estate holdings, which it acquired through default. It was during this phase, after the agency had insured up to 90% of its loans, that it created the notorious residential security maps. The maps identified black communities with having a lower, lower investment potential, higher risk, and they shaded the areas red. How these maps were used by the HOLC and distributed to the FHA and other banking industries is debated among historians, but it's clear that the maps provide arch archival evidence of lending risk perception in the 1930s. And historians and demographers have used these maps to analyze the legacy of redlining. We are unable to consult this resource as the residential security map never existed for Washington, D.C. or has been lost. So President Roosevelt also signed the National Housing Act, which established the Federal Housing Administration in 1934. The agency goals included increasing homeownership, reviving the stalled construction industry, and providing an economically sound, publicly sponsored system of mortgage insurance. The FHA had a profound nationwide impact on residential racial segregation, as it overwhelmingly insured loans for new construction and mostly white suburban communities. 
the organization created an, an underwriting manual, a risk evaluation system for itself and private lenders that appraised communities throughout the country. And that part of that underwriting manual is, uh, underwriting manual is on the screen. The FHA perceived neighborhood change, specifically racial transitions, as a cause for diminished property values and advocated for the inclusion of racial restrictive covenants as preventing decline in a neighborhood's value. In the late 1930s, the agency conducted their own surveys and produced their own series of evaluation maps. Few of these maps survive, but a residential subarea map for Washington, D.C. including parts of the down, included parts of the Down County planning area. The planning department had overlaid the FHA map on GIS previously. The map identified only one black community at Tacoma Park in the Down County planning area, which they graded as, graded as H, the lowest grade for housing. I included the language for this category on the slide. There are, however, several errors on the map. The surveyors failed to acknowledge the existence of two major black communities at Liddensville and River Road. These errors were evident when the project team overlaid black homeowners in 1940 who were represented with the individual pins on, on, on the screen. And this calls into question uh, what, how the map should be used to analyze African-American homeownership in Montgomery County, particularly in the Down County planning area. So this circles us back to the main scope of the project. Why focus on racial restrictive covenants? To quickly summarize the last couple of slides, there are no HOLC maps, and the FHA maps are limited to sections of the Down County and have major omissions. As a result, there are fewer opportunities to illustrate or analyze the impacts of these policies. On the other hand, racial restrictive covenants are part of the land records, remain intact for the entire planning area, and are accessible to the project team. To recap, racial restrictive covenants are private contractual agreements that prohibit the sale, rent, lease, or occupation of property to particular groups of people. Real estate developers, neighborhood associations, and property owners used racial restrictive covenants to create homogeneous white neighborhoods and prohibit, ho prohibit homeownership and occupancy by non-whites with the belief that this would maintain or improve residential property values. It's important to reiterate that these covenants are not enforced by the locality, but requires your neighbors to bring other parties to court. The Supreme Court ruled these covenants were unenforceable in 1948, but private property owners could continue to write them in the land records until the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968. There are two ways that the work of examining racial restrictive covenants is being done nationally. One is a parcel-by-parcel parcel analysis. You take every individual parcel back to the late 1800s and look for racial covenants in the deeds. This is a very time-consuming process. The other method is to supplement this approach with machine learning. Computer, computer AI searches for keywords, but individuals still need to fact-check, document, and log data. And while you capture most covenants, it could still, could take, could still take years of work. The Mapping Prejudice Project, being conducted out of the University of Minneapolis in Minnesota is the most comprehensive analysis of racial restrictive covenants in the country. And this slide shows the total number of volunteer hours, deeds transcribed, and number of volunteers involved in that project to date as shown on their website. So our, our team approached racial restrictive covenants at the subdivision plat level with a sampling method for each plat. We had the GIS team send us all the plats within the Down County planning area, as shown partially on the left. And when you click on one of those polygons, you can pull up an actual plat itself. 
From here, we can get the name of the owner or the company that subdivided the land. From there, we use the land record index to look up the property owner or company and conveyances made by that entity at the time of subdivision. With some luck, we then select individual deeds or declarations of covenants from that owner and confirm it's the correct subdivision. Finally, we examine the land records for any racial covenants. If we found racial restrictive covenants on a property within a subdivision, we marked the entire subdivision as yes and moved on to the next plat. The researchers would examine multiple parcels within a subdivision before noting that it did not have racial restrictive covenants. If this shortcut failed, the team would select individual properties and conduct traditional deed research, moving back sale by sale to the late 19th century. And for plats with less than five to 10 lots, it often made sense to take this approach. So upon completion of this effort, staff found that properties associated with 728 of the recorded plats, that's about 41%, included racial restrictive covenants between 1904 and 1952. And an additional 63 of those recorded plats, about 4%, likely included properties with racial restrictive covenants as well. As we look at this map for subdivisions recorded between 1904 and 1952, it's important to remember several key points. First, this map shows trends from the selective sampling. It does not document covenants at the parcel by parcel level. And second, that the public would need to conduct additional deed research to confirm whether racial covenants were placed on their individual properties. With that being said, the red shaded areas were areas we found that had racial restrictive covenants, the pink shaded areas possibly had covenants, and the blue shaded areas had no covenants. It's critical to understand that the area shaded blue did not welcome black residents, de facto and de jour segregation occurred throughout the county. The previous map often raises questions about all the gaps on the map. Uh, so here is the same map, but the gray shaded areas include all recorded subdivisions after 1953. And these are recorded plats that we did not investigate. This slide shows the information the user will see when clicking on a polygon. You'll be able to pull up the survey plat, the property owner, the racial restrictive covenant text, the groups discriminated against, and other such information. I'm now gonna walk through the spread of racial covenants in Montgomery County over time. This map shows new subdivisions created between 1904 and 1909. In the Dow County, developers and other owners used racial restrictive covenants sparingly at first. Examples here include the third and fourth additions to Chevy Chase and Silver Spring Park. Here's the language from the county's first known recorded racial covenant in 1904. Robert Holt Easley, a real estate speculator from Virginia, subdivided Silver Spring and Silver Spring Park and added the displayed racial restrictive covenant. These covenants combine racial segregation with nuisance law, public health, and ideas about racial purity from that time period. In the next decade, from 1910 to 1919, real estate developers included racial restrictive covenants in properties associated with 12 of the 36 recorded plats. These subdivisions included Edgewood, Bradley Hills, Cabin John Park, Chevy Chase Park, and Hillcrest in Tacoma Park. The advertisements for these companies reflected segregationist attitudes. For Cabin John Park, the American Land Company noted suitable restrictions access to the District of Columbia, health benefits, and the importance of homeownership in their ads. The company offered the first 100 properties at auction to, the, to only the highest white bidder. 
Historians suggest that covenants were used in affordable neighborhoods to restrict people of color from purchasing homes when the price of real estate itself didn't prevent black homeownership. Developers used racial covenants almost as an amenity to convince prospective white homeowners to purchase properties in the suburbs. A false narrative that racial homogeneity sustained property values had taken hold in the mind of white Americans. Two national events further increased the propagation of racial restrictive covenants. In 1917, the Supreme Court decision in Buchanan v. Worley prohibited racist zoning. Several southern cities had enacted zoning ordinances that required separate residential areas for its black and white residents. While racial zoning failed, developers and owners, however, recognized the usefulness of the legal system to enforce housing segregation and concluded that agreements between two private parties permitted restrictive covenants permitted by restrictive covenants, face less judicial scrutiny than wholesale government-acted segregation. And I included on this slide the main points that the city of Louisville argued in that case. The ideas about deterioration of property values would remain a core idea of discriminatory housing practices throughout the 20th century. During the same period, the Great Migration led thousands of black southerners to flee violence and poor living conditions and move to northern cities. By the 19-teens, Washington, D.C. was a cultural and financial center for black Americans, with 110,000 residents, which accounted for approximately 25% of the city's population. Many black Washingtonians had government jobs as clerks and other bureaucratic positions, and there was a small upper-class community. Racial tensions were elevated as housing and employment opportunities were limited, competition had increased, and newspapers stoked fear with sensationalized and false stories of violence against white women by black men. In addition, black soldiers returning from World War I had experienced better treatment overseas and pushed back against unfair policies. In 1919, what's now known as the Red Summer, marked a pattern of white-on-black violence that occurred throughout the country. In July, a four-day race war erupted in Washington, D.C., where black residents resisted and retaliated. Many white Americans, however, emerged from the violence that summer with the opinion that the nation needed more segregation. And this slide includes false and sensationalized headlines that ran in newspapers across the country. As these events unfolded, white real estate developers and residents of northern and western cities moved to isolate the black population by all means available, including racial steering and racial restrictive covenants. In 1924, the National Association of Real Estate Boards endorsed the use of such practices and its code of ethics as shown on the left. In 1926, the Supreme Court further institutionalized the use of racial restrictive covenants when it rejected a challenge to the practice in Corrigan v. Buckley. So returning to our map analysis, between 1920 and 1933, there is an increase in the percent of recorded plots associated with racial restrictive covenants. Major subdivisions included Battery Park, Blair, North Woodside, Ebrook Blaze Addition to Silver Spring, Seven Oaks, Blair Tacoma, Woodside Park, a new section of Chevy Chase, Indian Spring Park, among others. And during this period, covenants spread to other ethnic and religious groups. In 1932, covenants adjacent to Seven Oaks included restrictions against people of Asian descent. The following year, a corporation discriminated against people of Jewish descent. And the term Semitic races appeared in almost all the conveyances associated with properties that dis discriminated against Jewish residents. While the racial description of Semitic included various groups, the developers likely intended to discriminate primarily against Jewish people. 
The next period shown on the map represents the creation of the Federal Housing Administration in 1934 to the Supreme Court's ruling in Shelley versus Kramer in 1948. In that ruling, the court found that the judicial enforcement of racial restrictive covenants violated the 14th Amendment. And while they would no longer be enforced by the state, such covenants could still be written into deeds as a form of deterrence. During this time frame, properties associated with 53% of the record plots included racial restrictive covenants. There were five times as many restrictive covenants as the previous period. The number of racial restrictive covenants targeting Jewish residents increased dramatically in the, in the late 1930s and 1940s. This trend corresponds with anti-immigrant and anti-Jewish rhetoric spreading across America and the start of, a, of an expanding Jewish community in Montgomery County. Subdivisions that included such covenants included Bannockburn Heights, Bradley Woods, Locust Hill Estates, Ridgewood Village, 16th Street Village, Westgate, among others. And many of these subdivisions are located on the western side of the Down County. Racial covenants against Jewish residents culminated with a lawsuit filed in Bannockburn Heights. In 1947, five of 52 households filed a lawsuit in the Montgomery County Court, Circuit Court to force Lucille Tushin, a Christian, to evict Aaron Tushin, her Jewish husband, from their jointly owned family home down Wilson Lane. The suit claimed irreparable damage caused by, the caused by his occupancy in violation of the restrictive covenant. After local and national coverage of the incident and community support of the Tushin family, the residents dropped the lawsuit. The project team reviewed all the Dow County planning area plats recorded between 1949 and 1952, so four years of data after uh, the Supreme Court ruling in Shelley versus Kramer. Properties associated with 126 of the 416 recorded plots included racial restrictive covenants. However, properties associated with 50 of the 126 recorded plots with such covenants noted subject to existing covenants from previous land conveyances. Therefore, the number of new covenants dropped to approximately 76 of the 416 recorded plots, which is about 18%. And staff would expect the number of new racial covenants to continue to fall until it's outlawed in 1968. The Shelley versus Kramer decision appears to have minimal impact to the demographics in Montgomery County with respect to black homeownership, however. White flight from the District of Columbia contributed to another massive population increase in the suburbs. And between 1950 and 1960, Montgomery County's population increased from 164,000 to over 340,000. And the white population increased from approximately 153,000 to 327,000. 327, That's an increase over 100%. And the black population grew new or near at the same rate. The population went from 10,330 residents to 11,527 residents. So during this period, uh, the FHA slowly amended their policy to no longer permit racial covenants in the deeds in 1950, but the agency remained silent on who a property owner could sell or rent to. Therefore, voluntary discrimination remained in full force. The actions of the federal government and real estate developers, however, were strengthened by the decisions of the individual community members, the hands-off approach of the local government, and the apathy of the general public. So here is a summary slide showing discrimination against particular groups of people. All the covenants the team documented discriminated, discriminated against African-Americans, and a quarter of the covenants discriminated against people of Jewish descent. Less than 2% of the covenants discriminated against Asian-Americans. Throughout the country in the 1950s, black Americans who attempted to purchase homes continued to experience protest, threats, intimidation, vandalism, arson, and violence. 
they're withholding or uh, financing from mortgage lenders or and they received unfavorable terms. Also, real estate professionals were unwilling to show properties in all white communities for fear of censure or boycotts. And there were agreements between real estate professionals, lenders, and improvement associations to prohibit, to prohibit sales of people of color. A report goes into more detail about the civil rights movement in Montgomery County, but I wanted to share an example here of a family who persevered. Mary Betters, formerly Mary Williams, was president of the Montgomery County branch of the NAACP in the late, in the late 1950s. She documented her family's struggle to find housing in an all-white neighborhood near Veers Mill. In 1961, the real estate agent quoted the Williams family a higher price than advertised and refused to accept their deposit. The owner of the agency later tried to deter the couple from purchasing the property and claimed his company would go out of business if they sold to African-American purchasers. In the end, the agency released the property owners from their contract with the firm to sell, allow the owners of the house to sell to directly to the Williams family. So the efforts of the African-American community, civil rights and fair housing activists, and other allies led to the passage of the public accommodation and fair housing legislation here in Montgomery County in the 1960s. Next, the project team recorded single-family housing covenants in the land records as well. And more often than not, there are numerous covenants for a particular property or subdivision. And one of the common covenants which further limited communities along socioeconomic and racial lines was single-family housing covenants. Here is a map of all the single-family housing covenants that the team recorded in the Dow County planning area. Users of the map can examine the following information when clicking on a polygon. It includes the name of the subdivision, the covenant text, and the expiration of the covenant. The expiration is important here because these covenants could still, be, could still run with the land. For example, in this covenant for Woodside Park, it stated that the covenants remain in effect until the first day of January 1950 when they shall cease and terminate. Other covenants provided less specific language. And here are all the single family housing covenants that had no uh, explicit expiration date. Here we have the single family covenants that existed absent any racial restrictive covenants. We overlaid the two maps on one another. Again, these covenants were another layer that dictated exclusivity of the suburbs along racial and socioeconomic lines. In support of the upcoming Tacoma Park uh, Master Plan Amendment, we focused on Tacoma Park and used the area as a test case for potential future phases of the project. So looking at Tacoma Park, there were less racial restrictive covenants percentage-wise, but we wanted to explore the interplay between the growth of the black community there and the use of such covenants. To accomplish this, the team tracked black home ownership in Tacoma Park in the year 1900, 1920, 1940, and 1950 using the census records. The process included reviewing each page of the census, recording black homeowners and renters, and cross-referencing each owner with the land records to find an associated property. The deed record would then provide us with a plat, block, and lot number, which we would then use with the plat record and MC Atlas to determine the current address. We had to take these steps as most of the censuses before 1950 didn't list an address, and if it did, the address didn't correlate to our present-day streets and house numbering system. Sorry, I forgot to click forward for that slide. And this is just showing you the overall process going from deed record to the plat record. The next series of maps provides a timeline of covenants with black homeownership. 
The first known black homeowners in Tacoma Park were Luce, Louise, uh, Lewis and Grace Thomas, who worked as a caterer and nurse, respectively. Uh, Lewis Thomas acquired the property at 15 Montgomery Avenue in 1896. The 1900 United States federal census listed them as the only black homeowners in Tacoma Park, but seven other families rented houses nearby. There were 40 black residents at that time. The black community had its greatest period of growth between 1900 and 1920. The population grew to 203 residents. 13 families owned property and additional 27 families rented. The black owned homes were dispersed throughout Tacoma Park and only one racial restricted covenant existed at Hillcrest, which is shown, on, which is shown in red. Between 1920 and 1940, the black homeownership home at Tacoma Park continued to increase. By 1940, there was an equal number of homeowners, 33, and renters, 34. The overall population expanded as well to 304 residents. During this period, however, properties associated with at least 18 subdivisions included racial restrictive covenants, which channeled and concentrated the African-American community's growth into three distinct areas. These became known as the Hill, which is located at near Oswego, Geneva, and Ritchie, shown here. Uh, the bottom near Colby Avenue off Sligo Creek, shown here, and an unnamed smaller community on Poplar Avenue. Uh, the hill included the first Baptist church at Tacoma Park, established in 1922, and the Tacoma Park Rosenwald School, established in 1928. In 1950, black homeownership in Tacoma Park had increased to its highest levels in the 20th century. There were 56 owners compared to 27 renters. The population continued to increase with 445 total residents but the inclusion of racial restrictive covenants in the previous decade continued to isolate and concentrate the community. So clicking on those individual pins for each black homeowner will also pull up detailed information about that person or building. We have the primary residence, number of people in each household, occupations of the primary residence, the year the owners acquired the property, who provided their mortgages, and whether the house is still standing if it is a photograph of the house. This information will be invaluable as we consider these areas for any type of historic designation or review or undertake master plans within these boundaries. There are two other examples of discriminatory housing practices that's come apart that I'd like to highlight. One relates to reactive racial restrictive covenants and the other to the actions of a local civic association. So on this map, the blue outlined area area here shows the approximate boundaries of a reactive racial covenant. These are different than the covenants we've been discussing. On May 3rd, 1947, property owners in Tacoma Park agreed to a declaration of covenants with the sole purpose of restricting the sale of property to black residents. While in the other cases, cases it was an individual owner or developer putting the covenants on properties at the time of subdivision, this was an after the fact declaration agreed to by each party of the community. And our methodology would not normally capture these cases. In addition, uh, here we have the Lincoln Park Valley Civic Association that took an additional step to further isolate a black community within their boundary. The association boundaries, which are highlighted in yellow, uh, they, the, their bylaws included limited membership to Caucasians only. And therefore, the black residents on Colby Avenue, which are the black residents are indicated by the pins, um, had to form their own civic association. The success of the case study led the team to expand our documentation of black homeowners to the entire Down County planning area 
but we only were able to do this for the 1940 United States federal census. We identified a total of 97 black homeowners, which accounted for 12% of the 802 black homeowner, black homeowners countywide as shown on the chart. And there were four main communities in Lindensville, Tacoma Park, Hawkins Lane, and River Road. So here's a map showing the relationship between those communities in 1940 and the racial restrictive covenants. And this map shows the individual pins uh, representing African-American homeowners. And similar to the other maps, you can click on a pin to pull up information about the individuals. And lastly, this map adds to the, lo adds to the location of single-family housing covenants, which also precluded uh, black homeowners as well, as shown by the map. Uh, so this, this includes this portion of the presentation in terms of the background information, and, and Rebecca Bala will now talk about next steps and key takeaways. So at this time, the project team is partnering with the Research and Strategic Project Division staff to examine the legacy of racial restrictive covenants to see if there is any association between the findings of our deed research and existing racial and demographic profiles of census tracts or other designate, designated areas of the county, such as our equity focus areas. This forthcoming research would complete the final portion of the project scope outlined in phase one. So we, we've attempted to distill um, what the staff believes are some of the key takeaways from this project. As you heard, it's, it's a lot of research. Um, we've been at this for about a year and a half now, um, but trying to, again, distill some messages. Real estate developers working in Montgomery County employed racial restrictive covenants and other tools of de facto segregation throughout the 20th century, deliberately restricting where African Americans, Jewish, and Asian residents could buy homes and live. And the, as again, I said, the final project report will attempt to describe this pattern in different neighborhoods and across populations over time. And even where codified racism was seemingly absent, voluntary discriminatory practices abounded legally with homeowners, landlords, developers, and violent threats and actions against undesirable potential residents persisting as deterrents. This race-based discrimination limited opportunities for the black community to build interge intergenerational wealth through housing ownership at the same rate as white residents and likely severely impacted the growth of the African-American population in the county at large. This project has resulted in the county having a more accurate, documented understanding of the history of racial segregation, and all of this data will now be mapped and publicly available. Also, we think it's important to be able to center the stories of African-American property owners and neighborhood activists to demonstrate how the research can highlight these individual experiences. And having the data available will provide useful information for the planning department, historians, interested and interested residents, and will help to inform future planning and policy efforts in support of the planning department's equity agenda for planning. And that concludes our presentation. We're happy to take any questions. Thank you. Well, thank you for the presentation. Um, amazing piece of research, really. Um, do we have questions? Yeah. Commissioner Branson? Nobody's surprised, right? Um, so first of all, um, I, I hope everybody, within the sound of my voice, reads a book called The Color of Law, because it talks about many of the things you, you spoke about. Um, it's a fascinating book and very depressing. Um, but it, um, I wish I could remember the name of the author, but, um, Richard Rothstein. Thank you. Because I have read the book, but I just like was blanking on that. Um, um, 
A few things. Um, first of all, uh, in your presentation, well, first of all, um, I'm glad you brought up the religious, uh, the anti-Jewish covenants, too. I know also in this county there were anti-Catholic covenants people should know about. Um, so, so there were um, um, it, it there were covenants that talked about um, basically you had to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Period. End of story. If you weren't, just keep going. That that's important. People need to understand that. Um, unless I, I, I don't, I'm sure there's no way for you to really you know, track this, but the GI Bill played a huge mm -hmm. role in ensuring the, the um, segregation of the suburbs because, you know, um, most black soldiers were confined to service units. And the way the GI Bill was written, unless you were in a combat unit, you couldn't apply for GI Bill benefits. Race neutral on its face, absolutely discriminatory in its effect. Um, my grandfather's one that probably, I don't know, but my, my grandfather um, actually fought in World War II. He got two Purple Hearts. He fought in a combat unit um, because somehow or another he got hooked up with the French. I'm not sure how that ha happened. But, um, but he fought, and because of that, he was able to use the GI Bill to buy a house as well as to go to school. Um, that changed uh, my family um, incredibly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all I'm, I guess my point is that um, there had been, um, oh, and one more thing. Um, you mentioned in, in your presentation that there were a class of, a substantial class of um, African Americans in D.C., who worked for the federal government, who had, you know, good government jobs. Uh, well, that was until Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson segregated the federal workforce. Um, and in segregating the federal workforce, those, um, those people who had those jobs um, were consigned to the bottom. He made sure of that. Woodrow Wilson also screen birth of a nation in the White House. Um, so um, I say all that to say this. Um, there, <laughs> the efforts in this country to assure the subjugation of people of African descent have been far-reaching, have uh, been never-changing, and have been consistently applied. Um, I, I would hope that we can be just as um, uh, far-reaching and consistently applied in our efforts to um, undo the things that have been done. Um, they're really, yeah, you know, Maya Angelou said that um, courage is a virtue that you had to have in order to practice any of the others consistently. And, and we need to do that. I would also suggest, I noticed in your slideshow, um, the names of some of the developers who, you know, 
uh, practice these little schemes. One of the names I noticed, um, I'm pretty sure we got a few streets named after these people. I think it would be wonderful to figure out where they were, where those streets are, and to change those names. There's no reason, I mean, the name I saw was Easley. I, I used to live around a corner from Easley Street. It used to be in this, in the neighborhood that you, you, you uh, had as in one of those covenants. I don't know if that's the same person, I have no idea, not casting aspersions, but, um, but I think it would behoove us to look for the names of these developers and figure out whether any of our current streets bear their monikers, and if they do, to, to correct that. I think the planning director has something to say. That's all I gotta say, thank you. Thank you so much, Commissioner Branson. <clears throat> Just wanted to say, certainly as an African-American woman who's from D.C., um, you know, your family's history is somewhat similar to mine. Both of my grandparents, both of my grandfathers served in the military during World War II as well. Um, and certainly as a black planner working in this profession that has directly uh, been involved in creating the uh, discriminatory, segregationist, racist practices that we in our profession are now trying to undo. This is all both personal and professional for me, so I just wanted to say that I concur with everything that you said. Um, very familiar with, with a lot of what you mentioned, and I've also read The Color of Law, which I can say as someone who went to planning school and took planning history class and knew about some of this stuff, uh, it made me angry a number of times. I had to put it down uh, to, in order to just come back to it. Um, but to get to what you just noted, uh, so I believe I may have mentioned in a previous presentation that the um, back in the summer of 2020, the county council uh, asked the planning board chair as well as the county executive to undergo a review of the names of public facilities um, and uh, to identify those that were public facilities and streets that were named after uh, Confederate soldiers um, and those who do not otherwise uh, reflect the county's values. And given that uh, since the 1950s, uh, the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission in Montgomery County has the authority to name streets uh, with the exception of the independent municipalities um, as well as parks facilities, uh, that was the project that we focused on working with the parks department. And out of that, um, the uh, historic preservation team works with the historians in the parks department uh, and uh, developed a database that included the names of nationally known and local Confederate soldiers, uh, uh, slaveholders in Montgomery County, um, as well as the names of over 3,000 uh, black residents who were held in bondage um, in Montgomery County. That was where the research stopped at that point. Uh, when we got that request, it did not come with funding. Uh, so this was something that we undertook uh, within our own resources. But there has been sort of the question of, you know, what could be included in a, f in a future phase. Uh, so I appreciate the, the suggestion. Um, that is something that, that we can certainly consider because that category would fit in the, the latter part of what the council's 
uh, request is. Um, and I guess lastly, what I will say is that out of that initial project, we did identify three streets that had full name matches to Confederate soldiers. They were nationally known Confederates, and we did rename those streets uh, in um, July of 2021. So we did complete that work. Um, but one thing that you did mention in terms of the names, this was an issue that we flagged when this research was done. Uh, there are a number of streets that have last name matches uh, to individuals that were in that database, uh, specifically Confederates and slaveholders, but it would require a lot more research to determine if, if a street only had a last name match, is it that particular individual or someone else? So that is something I just wanted to, to um, note for the board. I'd like to uh, make a comment. Um, I mean, I'd like to echo what Commissioner Branson and our planning director uh, said. I, um, it infuriates me to hear about these racial restrictive covenants, but that's history, and uh, you guys have done a tremendous work. I mean, I've read The Color of Law, but you've really taken that to the local level. And I hope it's available for other people who are doing research to pick up on it and continue doing the historical research that we need to do uh, to fight uh, for any, any form of discrimination. Uh, the, the only other comment that I would say is that, um, I mean, this was blatant discrimination. You know, this was like open, at the time it was considered legal. I, I, you know, it's, it baffles my mind. But anyway, I think there's more forms of subtle discrimination going on now. I don't know to what extent. I know that you're looking at history, but as we work on uh, Thrive 2050, we have to look at other forms of discrimination that are going on now, which have to do with zoning, have to do with lot. Uh, size have to do with land cost. Uh, it's not a coincidence, and we've seen here that things don't happen uh, accidentally. Or, I mean, there are intentional things being done. Um, I can tell you, being on the board of HOC, uh, we, you know, we, we manage all the housing choice vouchers, which are for tenants. It gives them a choice of where they want to live because they have tenant mobility. What happens? 75% of those housing choice vouchers are in areas where there's low cost multifamily developments. And where are those? Aspen Hill and Gaithersburg. Now why uh, in this county <clears throat> it's so hard for a low income person to find housing in Bethesda or Chevy Chase or Potomac or Kensington, you know, it's, we, I mean, we got to find uh, ways that planning can contribute uh, to lowering the barriers for people to, uh, to find a decent place to live close to where they want to work and close to opportunities. Um, and um, I think uh, that will be the next step to the extent that you can take this historical research and push it to the to more uh, more you know subtle uh, ways of uh, discrimination where people don't have options and people don't have choice. Thank you very much. Anyone else? No. 
Commissioner yes. Brent, uh, Presley? Yes, I, I agree with those comments wholeheartedly. And I, I'm wondering, you know, as, as we've been, we looked at one project today that had a 12.5% MPDU ratio. And do we go beyond that to say what, what, ex what exactly is that <clears throat> moderately priced, excuse me, dwelling unit? So, uh, you know, are we trying to direct more of those types of units to be put in the areas within, you know, Bethesda, within Potomac and so forth? Uh, because I think that that data should be um, determined. Let's let's put that on the map as well. Uh, this is uh, Jason Sartori for the record. I do want to say that, yes, uh, the county passed a law a few years back that uh, changes that requirement for certain uh, neighborhoods with that meet certain characteristics. It's a 15% requirement now. And we are actually required to update that once every year. And I believe that we'll be coming to the board probably in January to let you know. Uh, I think it takes effect on January. It's not something that the board has to approve. We just run the numbers, we update it, and then we'll present it to the board so that you can be aware of those changes. So do you, do you know just off the top of your head, like what is the current in Montgomery County? Is there one standard for what would constitute an MPDU in terms of cost value, you know, whether it's uh, for purchase or uh, in, in a rental uh, building? It's based on a percentage of medium household incomes. Uh, uh, okay, so it is it is a blanket formula. It's not, it doesn't change per area? Not so far as I know. No. Uh, <laughs> I'll ask staff. I'll no. Back okay. I know, I know that's a little bit off topic, but it just, um, I, I, those are some I, things I'd be, I'd be I, interested to see. I, I think given the, the, uh, Commissioner's interest will do some session on MPDUs and, and okay. what the standards are, how it's located, yeah. what the prices are, uh, and, and we'll just try to schedule that. We can certainly do that. Thank you. Okay, nothing else. Thank you very much. Uh, an amazing presentation. I, I know what those land records look like. I know uh, how you have to be able to read Sanskrit to in order to translate uh, uh, the the older plots. It, it's just amazing work, and I appreciate it. Um, I think we're that's it. I think with that uh, we're adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.